When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my friends. Jared Halverson here. Welcome back to Unshaken. Thank you for letting me come and join you once again for Scripture Study. I hope that you enjoyed last week, uh, that you were able to come up for air a little bit, and, and that you're now nice and rested after a, a light week with only, what was that, two and a half hours, give or take, with Esther. Uh, we'll be back on to longer lessons today with the book of Job, but I promise it'll be worth your time because this book is an absolute masterpiece, not just of scripture, but of world literature. One of my favorite pieces of literature is Les Miserables by Victor Hugo. As amazing as the musical was, and as good as the movies have been, uh, none of them can hold a candle to the book. And so you'd think that its author, Victor Hugo, would be uh, a pretty good judge of good literature. Well, this is what he said about the book of Job. The book of Job is perhaps the greatest masterpiece of the human mind. That's tall praise coming from him. And Thomas Carlyle, who was a 19th century Scottish historian and essayist, said, I call this book, apart from all theories about it, and we'll get into some of those today, one of the grandest things ever written. Our first oldest statement of the never-ending problem, man's destiny and God's ways with him in the earth. There is nothing written, I think, of equal literary merit. Oh, we're in for a treat. And so much of it is the literary aspect of it. It is a combination of poetry and prose. And the, and the poetry far outweighs the prose as far as content. Yeah, but even beyond the literary, the message that it conveys, uh, the, the word for the day is theodicy. And theodicy is the technical term for what is sometimes referred to as the problem of evil. And the problem of evil is why should it exist if God is good and God is all-powerful? You see, that, that's, that's a question that has kept philosophers and theologians up at night for millennia. That if God is there and, he, and he's good and he's all-powerful, then why on earth would he allow horrible things to happen? It suggests that either there's no God, and sadly that's where a lot of people go in our day particularly, and often after they've gone through really hard things, or as they see the, the devastation and destruction and, and amount of human suffering in the world, that's, that's their conclusion. There must not be a God. The other options are, well, maybe he's good, but not all-powerful. That he's up there as sickened by these things as we are, but just can't do anything about it. That's unfortunate. We've got a nice God, but he's kind of a weakling. The opposite extreme is the other alternative, and that's, well, God is all-powerful. He could, he could do something about this, but he's not good so he doesn't. Now, I don't like either option. Uh, a nice a weakling in heaven or a, an all-powerful meanie. Neither one sounds like a good, a good option. And so that does leave us then with the, the problem of evil, with theodicy. And this is something that, when I remember in divinity school, there was an entire semester course just on theodicy. The book of Job factored into it high, <laughs> prominently, believe me. Because I don't know if there's a better book on earth to help us 
wrestle, and that's what we're going to see today. A lot of wrestling on the part of the part of on the part of Job and on his friends, and and that's the wrestle that we all need to engage in. I'll also say that I love the book of Job because I'm related to him. Uh, he's my father-in-law, and I mean that uh, only a slightly tongue-in-cheek. My father-in-law has been through so many things that he's one of the few people I know personally who will be able to pull up a chair next to Job in the spirit world and say, oh, well, let me tell you a story or two. Uh, he has been through incredible things. His wife, his wife passed away when they were oh, the parents of seven children, 12 and under, and she, she died of leukemia. Uh, later, he remarried an amazing woman that was willing to become instant mother of seven. Uh, and yet, uh, into that, years into that marriage, they lost the child, uh, one of his older sons. And fast forward years later, and he loses his business, he loses his home. Imagine moving from the big house on the top of the hill to the trailer at the bottom of that same hill. Uh, to look up and see your past and see what you've lost. He went to prison for something that he didn't do. You don't take on the government even when you know you're innocent. Yeah, but he did, and the government didn't let him off the hook on that. Uh, he had, in more recent years, uh, well, when we found out that when he found out that he had cancer, uh, my wife kind of rolled her eyes and said, "Well, of course he does. Uh, what else has he not been through?" And just add this to the list. Uh, well, I could go on, and I won't belabor the point, but I'm amazed at his attitude. In some ways. It was even superior to that of Job's. And maybe he has Job to thank for it. Job was our test, uh, our test uh, sample. And for him to endure this kind of suffering and come to the understanding he does by the end, I think that's what, probably what's gotten my father-in-law through. In fact, as, as he has said, my, my Job 2.0, of all the attributes of deity, what amazes him most and what he's most thankful for is divine restraint. I don't know many people who thank the heavens for that attribute, divine restraint, that God does not bail me out every time I cry out for relief because he has something higher and holier in mind for me. And that goal, that aim can only be accomplished through trial, through suffering, through opposition in all things. And we are going to see plenty of that today. Now, where does this book fit? What's the history behind it? That, those are difficult questions. Maybe that's what Carlyle was getting at with these theories about it. We don't, there is so little historically in it that we can't exactly place it. Some scholars suggest that, well, if we're going to place it historically, the best uh, clues that we can muster are that it would fit somewhere in between the flood of Noah and the Tower of Babel. Uh, which is interesting to think of it being squeezed between the story of the ultimate consequences for sin and an incredible amount of human suffering, there's the flood, uh, between that and a story of people doing whatever they can to try to avoid the consequences of sin and suffering. And so have Job right in the middle to teach us something, since he's the one wrestling with these issues. Uh, now others have said, well, maybe there's so little history in it, uh, and, so, and it's so difficult to place historically, because maybe it's not historical at all. Perhaps this is a story of fi a fiction rather than a fact. Now, uh, some people that I know are very opposed to that, and they say, no, 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 how dare you? How dare you fictionalize this story? After all, in section 121 of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord says to Joseph Smith, as he's languishing in liberty, thou art not yet as Job. 
thy, thy friends haven't turned upon thee. And the yet was probably foreboding. Well, you will be there uh, eventually, soon enough, but you're not there yet. And those that have, have used that text to justify the, the reality of Job uh, say things like, well, obviously he was a real human being, a real person, because the Lord calls upon him as, as evidence to try to reassure Joseph. And yet that same Lord taught in parables all the time. Uh, and so he could have said, thou art not yet as the, the father of the prodigal son. And that still would have meant something to Joseph. Uh, thou art not yet as the, the man who suffered with no good Samaritan uh, coming yet. That would have meant something to Joseph. We can, gra- we can gain incredible insights from parable as well as, as actual history. And I don't take a stand on this because we don't have enough evidence one way or the other. Uh, whether this is fact or fiction, the, the lessons are what, matters, what matter most. And the lessons are absolutely incredible. Now, the, part of the challenge is, what, what is this book all about? When I teach it in my, to my institute students, I'll often ask them right before we begin, can anybody sum up the book of Job in three very short sentences? I just want to see how concise we can be. And usually they'll raise their hand and say, oh, that's, that's easy. Job had all kinds of stuff. He lost all his stuff. And then he got all his stuff back. Hmm. Pretty good summary. Now, that's an excellent synopsis and nice and concise, just like I asked. Now, do you realize, though, that what you just described, as accurate as it is, is chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 42? Yeah. Job is that long. There are 42 chapters. And those three sentences, although they summarize the story, they only cover the first two chapters and the very last one, which means we completely skip over the middle 39 when we think about the book of Job. Now, part of me says, I understand why. The middle 39 chapters are the poetry and the prose is so much more straightforward. That's one of the things that's going to make Isaiah challenging in a couple of weeks, because it's this massive epic poem, basically, uh, with so much imagery and symbolism and figurative language and metaphor and simile and, and chiasmus and you name it. It's going to make understanding Isaiah difficult. Well, that's what makes understanding the middle portion of, of Job difficult, too. But it's the, it's the poetry we have to wrestle with. It is this epic poem on the problem of pain. Why it exists. Why, especially when it's innocent suffering. Why do we have to go through things like this? The problem of evil, theodicy, if God is good, then why can't life be? And sometimes we're put into situations where that is our question. One last thing to say before we we get into the actual story. I remember in Tennessee sitting in church for a high council Sunday. And the high counselor that spoke uh, came across as a little crusty uh, as far as personal, personality was concerned. Once you got past that, he was a wonderful person, but, but kind of an academic and intellectual and, and uh, just kind of said it, a straight shooter said it like it was. And I just remember he started his, his sacrament meeting talk with this. I'd like to discuss with you today the, the problem of evil. The question of why do bad things happen to good people? And I sat there, okay, perked up, okay, and the theodicy lesson, fantastic. But what he said next, I doubt I'll ever forget. He said, but that begs another question. Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, let me ask you all this. Who says those are bad things? And who says you're good people? 
<laughs> and I just remember dying laughing. He had a total straight face. And I just remember thinking, he totally called us out. Uh, who says we're good people? Now, that, there was actually genius behind his questions. And what we'll see in the book of Job, basically, are those two, the two questions being, being fought over and argued about. Who says those are bad things? That's how God's going to respond. And who says you're good people? That's how Job's friends are going to respond to him. And we'll see both of those unfold. In, in some ways, what I picture as we, as we sit down to hear from this incredible man of God is if Lehi were to raise his hand in a gospel doctrine class, as we've gathered our cloud of, of scriptural witnesses, Lehi would say, as he said so many times in the Book of Mormon, if you'll keep the commandments, you'll prosper in the land. It's as simple as that. Uh, throughout the book of Deuteronomy, you see the exact same message. Keep the commandments, you'll prosper in the land. Uh, Alma gives us the reverse, but it's the same thing. Wickedness never was happiness. Uh, Moses, I have set before thee life and death. So choose life, and you choose life by choosing to obey. It's as simple as that. If you'll do what God says, he will bless you. Now that's true. Sometimes. <laughs> because I could picture Lehi saying that emphatically. And I picture Job oh, hesitantly raising his hand on the other side of the classroom and saying forlornly, yeah, that wasn't exactly my experience. And so if the Lehi version, the simplistic approach that obedience always brings immediate blessings, if that's too simplistic to be absolutely true, then I hope that we are prepared for a higher order lesson from Job today. Lehi was teaching us uh, Mortality 101. Job has paid the price to matriculate in Mortality 505. This is upper division. And I pray that especially you who are going through difficult things, you for whom the problem of pain is not abstract, but incredibly concrete and immediate and personal and painful, then I pray that our discussion today will be a blessing to you, as it's been to me. The story begins in Job chapter 1, verse 1, go figure, where we get to meet our main character. There was a man in the land of Uz, and that's the challenge. We don't know exactly where that is. Some suggest that it's Oh, off in the eastern side of Mesopotamia, near where Babylon and Persia were headquartered. Others suggest that it's oh, southeast Israel, where the Edomites eventually lived. Again, it doesn't matter. Part of the beauty of this book is that it is so widely applicable. If you've ever suffered, then this book speaks to you. Okay? So wherever this land was, call it your land, because you've lived there, or someday will. His name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright, and one that feared God and eschewed evil. Now that's our very first introduction, and if that's all you know about Job, on the one hand, you're probably leaning, it's probably fictional then, because I'd have never met anybody quite like that. Perfect and upright? Well, <laughs> they strive to be. Now, perfect in this case, we don't have to necessarily assume that that means sinlessness. When Jesus said, be ye therefore perfect, at the end of Matthew chapter 5, there's some great, great oh, etymology behind that Greek term, that that's your, your finished product, your whole, your complete. 
but that doesn't mean that you were flawless on the way to get there. But according to this verse, it does suggest that Job has arrived at that state of wholeness and, and completeness. He's an upright man. So here's a man of integrity, of honesty, of righteousness and worthiness. He fears God, so he reverences God. He honors God in all that he does. And he eschews evil. As soon as evil pokes out its ugly head, Job is turning away and running. We'll see evidence of that as we go on. But please think, if this is our earliest introduction to this man, what can we assume his, his life will look like? There, verse 1 is his character. Well, verse 2 is going to introduce us to his existence. What is he li- How is he living? Amazingly. So what's his life going to look like? Well, it's going to be pretty amazing too. If you have the understanding that Lehi and Moses and most of Scripture gives us, that elementary level, obedience always brings blessings. Well, sure enough, verse 2 and 3, there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. Numerous seed. And if you think about, again, Old Testament, Abrahamic covenant, and so forth, the promise of posterity is the greatest blessing you could ask for. And he had incredible blessings here, too. I actually had to point out to my father-in-law, we were laughing once about the book of Job and his parallel to it. Uh, Laughing because it's better than crying, uh, though he deserves to. And I pointed out the fact that, Dad, it's eerie how similar you are to him, down to the point that you have 10 kids, just like Job. And my father was like, whoa, I'd forgotten that detail. Really? He had 10 kids? I was like, yeah, it, it's, it gets better. Your 10 are seven sons and three daughters. And guess how Job's family makeup was? Exactly identical. Uh, it's eerie how parallel this is. But now that we have the family numbers in place, keep reading in verse 3, his substance also was 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 she-asses, and a very great household. That's all of his servants. So that this man was the greatest of all the men of the East. Again, if you are under the Oh, ideology that wickedness never was happiness and righteousness always brings it in the immediate, uh, in the short term, then verse 2 and 3 are exactly what you would expect based on verse 1. Righteousness equals prosperity. And temporal blessings always reflect spiritual blessings. By the way, most of the book of Job will problematize that oversimplified notion. It will call into question, is that always the case? And it's important that 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 gets called into question. Uh, There are things out there today called, well, false beliefs called the the prosperity gospel. And the problem with the prosperity gospel is not that it's all false, but that it's kind of based on half-truths. Thinking that if we keep the commandments, of course God will prosper us. Because sometimes we get those reversed. If I want to look worthy, then I should look wealthy. And sometimes we live beyond our means because we want to appear to, look, to be blessed. We want people to assume that we are righteous and that's why we're rich. Or that we are pure and that's why we're prospering. Oh, some of the most worthy and righteous people I've ever met have been poor, but not poor in spirit, simply poor in the things of the world. And they have turned to God as a result and become so much like him. So be aware aware and beware 
of the of the shallowness of of thinking that those are always synonymous in the immediate aftermath of, of righteousness, if I can say it that way. Well, keep reading. Job's children uh, in chapter 1 are out feasting together. A nice close-knit family. That would be a blessing to, to Job as well. But in verse 5, it was so when the days of their feasting were gone about that Job sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be, I don't know for sure, but just maybe, just perhaps, my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And thus did Job continually. I don't know if I've seen examples of just-in-case repentance, just like this one, especially meant for other people. I mean, it's one thing for Job to, to be a, a quote-unquote perfect and upright man himself, but just in case my children aren't quite as worthy as I am, Oh, I should probably sanctify them. I should keep working on that. I should offer burnt offerings and sacrifices for their behalf uh, in hopes that God will forgive them for whatever they do, even if it's only in their hearts that they're cursing God. I don't know why they'd curse him. They've got a, a, an incredible life. I mean, they're related to me after all. And here I am, the greatest of all the men of the East. And so they've got nothing to complain about. Life is good for them. Prosperity gospel, you better believe it. But just in case that anything goes wrong within, I'll, I'll try to cover their bases as best I can. In verse 6, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan came also among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. Now, a hugely important character has just walked onto the stage, and that's Satan. Surprisingly, we haven't seen many personal appearances of the adversary so far in the Old Testament. I mean, he played some starring roles back at the beginning, right? In the fall, uh, Moses chapter 1 as well. But since then, oh, he's been content to remain behind the scenes, trying to bring Israel down and largely succeeding at it. But here, he's front and center. As he comes waltzing up to God, and God engages him in conversation. Some have wondered, is, is this literal? Uh, or is this figurative in some way as well? And we could say, we don't really know. Now, on the figurative side, you could say, ah, yes, Satan. In fact, the name is more title than proper name. Satan simply means the adversary, ha-satan in Hebrew. And so here comes the adversary. And we might even re reshuffle that word and call it, here comes the adversity. If Satan then becomes the embodiment of, of evil, in terms of the problem of evil, if Satan becomes the personification of pain and problem, uh, he is the source of so much of it, right? And so to think of, of Satan problems personified, going to and fro about the earth, and leaving suffering in his wake, then the figurative approach to that verse is pretty accurate. Then again, the literal approach is pretty accurate as well. Now, I'm not sure about this thought of God was gathering the sons of God, and all of a sudden Satan shows up to discuss the, the prospects of being able to tempt Job. That, that, I'm not so sure about that. But based on what he's about to say in his conversation with God, Oh, I love the literal side of this because it suggests what happened in pre-mortality as far as the war in heaven is concerned. Notice in the next couple of verses, 
the, as the conversation unfolds, think of it in terms of the war in heaven. Verse 8, the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? So God gives Satan the same introduction to Job that we got back in verse 1. The fact that there are none like him suggests a one-of-a-kind nature that would do anything for God and would never associate with evil. This man is perfect and upright. Now, if we're thinking war in heaven, who's the only one that fits that description? Well, Job becomes an incredible type and shadow of Jesus Christ. For the father to point to the son when he asked, Whom shall I send? Oh, it would have to be someone that fits that kind of description for him to be able to overcome the opposition that the adversary was, was bringing up. But notice what happens next. Verse 9, Satan answered the Lord and said, Fine, doth Job fear God for naught? Hast not thou made an hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth thine hand now and touch all that he hath. He will curse thee to thy face. It's amazing how close that is to some of the arguments that Satan must have presented in premortality. Think about what he said. The only reason he's righteous is because there's this hedge about him. The only way that people can live good lives is if life is good. Nice and easy for them. Now think about what he was presenting. A plan where life would be easy. A plan where there would be a hedge around you to protect you from the consequences of your own choice. That's the loss of agency. Too often we think of Satan's plan meaning of no agency, meaning there's no choice. Well, the, the other inherent part of agency is not just choice, but consequence. And he could give you choice and eliminate consequence, and there goes agency. And there goes any problems that would keep you from returning to God. It's an amazing solution. I, I mean, logically it doesn't work. Uh, there has to be cause and effect. There has to be connections here. There will be consequence to sin. That's the law of the harvest. That's just how it works. But in terms of what Satan was, was going for and the human fears that he was trying to leverage, I, I will give you the hedge. I will make it so that you all return home to be with God. Granted, you won't be like God, but let's not talk about that. Okay? Because to become like him, we're going to have to tear down the hedge. Hmm, this is starting to get closer and closer to the main message of the book of Job. But there in premortality for the adversary to say, I will make things easier for you. I, and that way you will honor me. I will get the glory. The only reason that Job honors you, God, is because you keep honoring him with all of these undeserved blessings. Oh, but take them away, and he'll curse you to hit your face. Oh, think hard and try to draw parallels between this little scene in Job chapter 1 and the war in heaven, and it's incredible just how true to life this, this Satan is. Now in verse 12, the Lord responds. The, Lord, the same God who, who trusted the Son that someone as perfect and upright as Jehovah would be able to lead the way and set the example uh, so that we could all navigate, navigate our mortal life. 
this same God who trusted us without the hedge and allowed us to recognize and face the consequences of our poor decision and then sent his son to be able to atone for it. This same God of the plan says to Satan in verse 12, fine, behold, all that he hath is in thy power, only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. Giddy as a schoolboy, I'm sure, with the, the green light to cause Job to suffer. At least suffer indirectly. I'm going to remove from him all of his temporal blessings. Now again, does, did God literally say that to Satan in, in Job chapter 1? I don't know. But did he basically allow for that in premortality? You better believe it. I'm going to allow opposition to exist on the earth. That will be the gravity that allows people to actually build muscles when they start lifting the weight. Uh, without that opposition, you can move all kinds of weight, but it won't be weighty and you won't grow from the experience. So yes, there will be opposition in all things. And it's amazing how much of that is provided by the adversary. It is nice to know, however, based on that text, that whatever leeway that Lucifer has, God, it is still oh, circumscribed by the power of God. That God can say to the adversary, thus far and no further. And I'm grateful to know that. And in some ways, I'm not surprised that God gave Lucifer that green light. Because, again, part of that opposition in all things, but also it helps to prove us as far as what are the motivations behind our actions. Do we have ulterior motives? And is it just because that I'm behind a hedge? That I'm, that I'm feeling safe and protected? Is it only because I'm being blessed? I mean, again, that goes back to that shallow uh, sense of obedience brings immediate blessings. And that is kind of a stage one view of the world. Uh, we try to raise our children with that. And we, we, we train our, our pets that way, right? We, Pavlov's dog, as soon as you do it, I'll give you the treat. Well, that's, that's good as far as command and response. But what about things that require more long-term perseverance? Like I said, this is good stage one child rearing, stage one faith in God, stage one understanding of what mortality looks like, but we tend not to remain in stage one permanently. And so what are we going to do next? This test that Lucifer is going to assist with is actually the test that we all need to learn to pass. Because Job first verse we met him, seems to have already arrived. But as we will see in upcoming chapters, the long epic poem about the problem of pain, we're going to see that he still has some growing up to do. He needs to progress out of stage one, which he has totally mastered through the difficulty of stage two onto the glories of stage three. We've talked about this before. Creation, fall, atonement. That's the story arc of life. That's the story arc of Job too. He has mastered creation stage, where all was wonderful. The Garden of Eden was surrounded by the hedge, so to speak, and there were no consequences of sin. Here comes the adversary into the Garden of Eden to push them out. So not, not only is this a, a, an embodiment or a parallel to the war in heaven, but it's a parallel to the, the creation and the fall in Eden as well. So here comes the serpent slithering into the garden. Here comes Satan up before, before the son and daughter of God, Adam and Eve. And can we test them? Can we push them out 
and see if they'll still be faithful. Uh, what we'll see through the, the 39 chapters in the middle is, is Job through the fall and wrestling to come to terms with, with the elevation of the atonement that will lift him higher and holier than he ever was back in chapter 1. It's just going to take some wrestling to get there. In some ways, this is also the, one of the points of the Sermon on the Mount. How does chapter 5 of Mo- Matthew 5, 6, 7, there's the sermon. How does chapter 5 end? Be, therefore, perfect and upright and fear God and eschew evil. Be, therefore, as Job, God could say. And yet the sermon isn't done. If you've reached perfection, you'd think that God is like, okay, you're good. You made it. You are perfect. But no, chapter 6 follows. And what's chapter 6 of the sermon all about? Purifying our motives. Now that you're perfect, can you perfect the reasons that you've sought perfection. And then chapter 7, even after you've finished chapter 6, and you have, or you're living perfectly with perfect motives, there's still chapter 7, which is all about judgment, because some people are still back in chapter 5 or chapter 6. Cut them some slack. Don't judge them. And we'll see that problem personified with Job's three friends a little bit later. Anyway, there are so many oh. threads woven together in this incredible tapestry. And right here from the start, we're only a handful of verses in, we are seeing the plan of salvation unfold before us. And how will we do once we are totally tested? Now, for the rest of this chapter, Job's physical body remains behind the hedge. But everything outside of him is fair game, and the adversary wreaks havoc on it. In verse 14 and 15, there came a messenger unto Job. And said, the oxen were plowing and the asses feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them away. Yea, they have slain the servants with the edge of the sword. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Now, this is only the first wave of adversity that's about to come crashing down on Job's head. And it's a peripheral one. If you picture Job as the target, the bullseye of the target, and then these concentric circles around it, Satan is beginning to pick off the periphery. And what he starts with are these oxen and asses. It's, oh, it's Job's beasts of burden. He can, get a, he can get by without those, right? Well, if these are the ones that are doing the plowing to be able to grow crops, to be able to feed his family, oh, this is, this is harder than we might think. If you've ever lost a job, for example, that might be the modern equivalent. I can't provide for my family. What am I supposed to do? And there's often a loss of self-confidence that comes with that. There is a feeling of vulnerability and exposure to a world that no longer seems as secure as it once did. This is a hard moment for Job. And only one servant that comes in out of breath telling this sad tale. Like I said, this is only going to be the first of many. And they come, the, the waves come crashing in such quick succession that as soon as one servant is finished telling his tale of woe, the next one rushes in out of breath with something even worse to say. This first one, I don't know how we're going to plant crops. I don't know how we're going to grow anything. And, but notice this also, whose fault is it? Well, it was those Sabaeans who came in, some enemy tribe that came rushing in and, and took the animals or, or destroyed them, which gives Job someone to point to and blame. That's going to be important when you compare it to the next wave of adversity. Verse 16, while he was yet speaking, 
So there's no time to recover. One more wave of adversity come crashing down. There came also another and said, The fire of God is fallen from heaven and hath burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. So again, I'm the only survivor. We will see that repeated each time. Now, no sheep. This is different than the first affliction. The first was beasts of burden. Well, my sheep aren't going to plow. True. But they can feed. That's what you could have used to feed your family. If there's not going to be any, any agricultural growth, at least we have flocks and, and herds to feed upon. Well, not anymore. There goes a major food supply in the ancient Near East. And not only that, but I, I mentioned being exposed to a world that now seems to be opposed to you. Well, I can't even use the sheep's wool as clothing to cover myself from that. I am literally being stripped naked and exposed to a world that, does no, that no longer has my best interests at heart. Up to this point, it seems like, oh yeah, I figured it out. I live a good life and life then is good. But something's gone wrong in the meantime. And I am now uncovered. Remember that word, the coat of skins, covering nakedness, atonement, all of that. Without sheep, how will I cover myself? And then the other detail, how did this one happen? The fire of God is fallen from heaven. That's why I pointed out in the first wave of adversity, it was human agency being used against, against Job. And often, in, in the history of, of trying to explain theodicy, that's usually where people tend to run first. Chalking up the problem of evil, not to God, but to other people. In other words, we suffer not because God is, is, is bad or unpower, not powerful, but because people have the power within them to do bad things. And, and we suffer as a result. Now that is true. And so many of the sources of human suffering are man-made. And that's tragic. It says something about us in our, in our fallen nature. But in this second instance, no. That's no longer an option. And honestly, as people wrestle with the problem of evil, once they see past the human agency part, they then turn to divine agency. And they start thinking about natural disasters. And earthquakes and fires and floods and famines and things where there's no human hand to, to blame. That God is behind this. I mean, one of the most... Oh, angry skeptics of the 18th century was Voltaire. And what was it that pushed him over the edge into skepticism? It was the earthquake in Lisbon, Portugal, and the incredible loss of life that occurred as a result. You could chalk up Voltaire's loss of faith to theodicy. And it was the round two that Job suffered, not the round one. I, God is to blame here. And God could have avoided that without interfering with anyone's agency. He didn't have to let that natural disaster happen. Well, Job now has more to wrestle with. Do I blame the Sabaeans? Well, now who do I blame? The fire of God falling from heaven? Ah, I don't want to look in that direction for an enemy. Keep reading. 
in verse 17, while he was yet speaking. You see what a beautiful literary masterpiece this is? We see these repeated phrases that come up with each round of, of affliction. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, the Chaldeans made out three bands and fell upon the camels and have carried them away. Yea, and slain the servants with the edge of the sword. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Now, at least we're back to human agency. We seem to be bound, we're going to be bouncing back and forth between the two to try to wrestle with the whole issue here. But we have Chaldeans to blame. And what have they, what have they taken? The camels. Now, they, that's a different trial than the oxen and asses. It's a different trial from the sheep. In some ways, I wonder, Job, what are you going to do? How are you going to provide for yourself and your family? when you can't plant crops and grow food, you can't eat your flocks and herds. Oh, well, if you're one of the mightiest men of the East, I'm sure you have many a trade partner. And with your camels, you can go out and trade the increase of your fields and flocks. Uh, you can get whatever you need from a distance that you don't happen to grow right here at home. But now without camels, how are you going to, I mean, you can't get up and move and find greener pastures somewhere, nor can you trade for those that live in the greener pastures and you can, you can borrow or buy some of their things. This is like losing your job and then losing your home and losing your car and, and wondering, where, where do I go from here? Well, in Job's case, unfortunately, you keep going downhill. Verse 18, while he was yet speaking, there came also another. By this point, I'm picturing Job dreading the thought of any more servants showing up with bad news. Well, this was the worst news of all. This servant says, Thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. Again, a close-knit bunch, a wonderful family. And behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young men, and they are dead. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Alone, only. Those words would have haunted Job this time more than any of the previous iterations. Because he's feeling alone. He still has his wife. We'll meet her in a moment. But my children are gone? All of them? All ten? And the servant probably can't even bring himself to say it again. Yes, your children are gone. I can't imagine a more devastating trial than this one. Satan has been recalibrating his aim. He's getting closer and closer to the target. It's not just the oxen. It's not just the sheep. It's not just the camels. It's your own kids. And they're gone. It's not just that you can't provide for your family. It's not that you just can't feed your family. It's, it's that you have no more family to feed. And worst of all, you have no one to blame for this but God. No direction to shake your fist except heavenward. Because it wasn't the Chaldeans this time. It wasn't the Sabaeans this time. It was a great wind from the wilderness and only God makes the wind blow. How could he? How could he do this to me? How could he do this to my children? They were innocent. I made sure of it. I sanctified them. I offered sacrifice just in case. But all of that for naught? 
Now, there's actually one more wrinkle to this concern that, that haunts me personally. Because what's interesting is they weren't killed by the wind, per se. They weren't swept away in a whirlwind. We see that in 3 Nephi, but not in Job 1. There was something in the middle that took place, and it was the fact they were under the, the, the roof of this oldest son, and the wind blew out the corners of the house, and the house is what crushed them. Now, I said there's no one to, to blame here but God. But I wonder, how do homes get built? Yes, it belonged to the oldest son, but this was a tight-knit family. I'm assuming they all chipped in and helped. I assume Job had more experience in home construction than his son did, uh, having probably built his own. And to be the general contractor, when a home comes crashing down, how do you not second-guess yourself? How do you live with regret for the rest of your life as you wonder, could I have done anything different? Could I have built it better? Could I have made it stronger? Is this on me? No, I didn't cause the wind to blow, but is there anything more I could have done? That's the haunting lament of the Lord of the Vineyard, right? Or in the allegory of the olive tree, Jacob 5. What more could I have done for my vineyard? And sadly, for us, there's always an answer. I could have done more. I could have tried harder. What more could I have done to help my children so they didn't fall away? I know so many parents that are haunted by that question. Because of course we can always do better. That's, that's always the case. But to spend the rest of our lives beating ourselves up over those kinds of regrets? I've said before, I'm a fixer by nature. Which unfortunately makes me a blamer by nature of the natural man. I want to fix it, so I want to see what the problem was and who caused it. And when I'm the one who caused it, it's pretty devastating. And it takes a lot of effort to try to, to come to terms with my own weakness and mistakes. And it could have been different if I had been different. And I wonder if this is one more aspect of what Job has to go through in order to personify the human experience. If Satan is our personification of the problem of pain and suffering and evil and opposition, then Job is the suffering servant. Job is us. But I'll also say Job is Jesus. He who condescended below all things. He who had to wrap himself around the entirety of the human experience. Even down to the point of these kinds of personal regrets and dwelling on past failings and could things have been different if I had been? Well, how do you end this chapter of suffering and woe? In verse 20, Job arose. He rent his mantle. He shaved his head. He fell down upon the ground and fill in the blank. I'll often ask my students to do exactly that. What's the verb? He rent his mantle, shaved his head, it fell on the ground. He's obviously mourning. So what would be your final verb? He wept. He mourned. He lamented. He grieved. He cried. He, he cursed. He blamed. He complained. 
they're all uh, any number of verbs would fit there perfectly, which makes the one that actually appears all the more astonishing. Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshipped. That to me is one of the most powerful verbs you'll ever see in the grammar of God. To go through something like that and to fall down in worship of honoring God, of praising Him that I ever had time to spend with those beautiful children at all. That you had blessed me so abundantly and I saw your hand in the blessing and I see your hand in, in the taking away of that blessing. But at least I see the hand and I worship it. I don't know if I see a more submissive example of worship anywhere in Scripture than right here. After which he says in verse 21, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. You want to talk about complete faith in God. Naked came I in, naked will I leave. And anything that happened in the meantime, in between those two events, that was just a bonus. That was a blessing. But one that wasn't intended to last in this life. Remember, naked, uncovered, unatoned for. Oh, I'm grateful that that's, that doesn't apply to us. Our sins can be covered by the atonement of Christ. But yes, we are exposed, not only to the demands of justice, which didn't seem to be the challenge for Job since he was perfect and upright, but exposed to the, the vicissitudes of life, exposed to the challenges of mortality. And, and what did we expect? That's what God promised us in pre-mortality. It was only the adversary assuring us of some kind of hedge to keep us safely behind. Well, round one and chapter one goes to Job. Job one, adversary zero. And, and Job proved God right. I'm, have you not considered my servant Job? He's as good as they come. And, and you failed in your Oh, misconception of him. Well, the adversary is not one to give up easily. And so, of course, he thinks, well, it's, it's because you wouldn't let me get to the bullseye. Yes, you, you made the hedge a little closer to Job, but it's still there. So how about round two? Verse one of chapter two, again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said unto Satan, From whence comest thou? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. Same as before. Life goes on. All of its ups, all of its downs. That's just how it, how it works. But verse 3, the Lord says to Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? Literarily, there is redundance for a reason here. Life has gone on. And Job's righteousness has gone on, despite all that has happened in the meantime. 
it's amazing that he hasn't changed as a result of his sufferings. God says that. Still he holdeth fast his integrity, although thou movest me against him to destroy him without cause. You tried your best. You did your worst. And Job still came out shining. Now notice the end of that phrase. You tried to destroy him without cause. And I wonder if that's one more level of adversity beyond what we saw in chapter 1. That admission, he didn't deserve that. And I think one of the things that makes suffering worst is when it's innocent suffering. It's one thing when we kind of know, yeah, I deserve that. I, I, I had that coming. But when it comes out of the blue and there's, you can't blame yourself at all. As hard as it is to blame yourself, the opposite is also true. It's really hard when you, when you know that you're not to blame. Then why is this happening to me? Elder Maxwell once talked about adversity and he talked about irony as the hard crust on the bread of adversity. I mean, adversity is pretty <laughs> tough, fair anyway. It's not exactly wonder bread. Uh, it, well, it, you wonder what, why the bread is as tough as it is. And add to that a crust on the outside that makes it even harder to eat. This is impossible to swallow. And it's the irony that makes adversity all the worse. To suffer without cause, this is something that, that Job is going to have to keep wrestling with. In verse 4, Satan answered the Lord and said, Well, fine, skin for skin, yea, all that a man hath will he give for his life, as long as you survive your trials. And it wasn't the worst case scenario after all. So let's intensify it, shall we? Put forth thine hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse thee to thy face. You see, so far it's all been one step removed from direct, immediate suffering. But once you get rid of that innermost hedge and allow people to suffer in ways that, there are no, that there's no avoiding, <laughs> though then they'll, he'll curse you to your face. Up to this point, oh, I'm sure Job could, as hard as it might be, he could still mentally check out. He could somehow try to push back the negative emotions of things and, and just steel himself against the suffering that remained outside of him. But have him suffer it himself. Oh, physical agony leaves no escape. So let's try that. In verse 6, the Lord said unto Satan, Fine, behold, he is in thine hand, but save his life. Again, I'll give you some, some leeway, but your power is limited. But in Job's case, it will be barely limited. You can push him to the very brink of death. Again, if you think of Jesus as, oh, Job as our type and shadow of Jesus, think about what King Benjamin said about him, that he would suffer physical agony, right? He would suffer hunger, thirst, fatigue, pain, even more than man can suffer, except it be unto death. That Christ's agonies would be such that it was just a hair's breadth removed from death. And in, in essence, God gave Satan permission to push Job just that far. 
And so it goes. Verse 8. So went Satan forth from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot unto his crown. He took him a potsherd to scrape himself with all, and he sat down among the ashes. Oh, boils, and I don't know all that that entails, but from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there is no body part that seems unaffected by this. To the point that he just takes a broken piece of pottery, which seems to represent him as well. Talk about a metaphor. And he takes that brokenness and uses it to try to alleviate some of his own pain. Just scratching himself, trying to eliminate some of his agony. These objects seem so appropriate for Job. I'm just a potsherd. God has broken me. I'm sitting in the ashes. He has burned down my hopes. And I've got nothing left. His wife then speaks to him in verse 9. And this is the first time we meet her. She says, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. Now we need to pause here and consider this woman. We don't know her name. We know nothing about her. Well, next to nothing. She appears in this verse really alone. And... And yet, when I teach women in the scriptures classes, we try to spend some extra time with Job's wife. Because if you are married to suffering personified, if you're, if you're sealed to the embodiment of anguish, then yes, your life's going to be hard too. If it's, it's one thing for a father to lose these ten children, but for a mother's heart to break, to shatter, imagine what she's going through. The fact that she didn't die in all of the, the, the death that we saw in chapter 1, at least it would have been the end of her suffering. And, we, and oh, I, I suppose that Satan could have used that as one more way to get at Job. But I wonder if this was an even harder one. Because though she didn't die physically, this verse suggests some level of spiritual death. Because she's the one suggesting to her husband, curse God and die. We, there's nothing left for us. Why do we, why keep trying? Worship is not the verb I would have put at the end of that verse. We have nothing. We've been reduced to absolute nothingness. And, and God's behind this. So curse God and die. Now, like I said, it would have been a brutal, di brutally difficult trial for Job to lose his wife physically. But here, d does it seem that he's losing her spiritually? And that, to me, might be an even worse trial. Some of you, I know, are going through that. Actually, it was my mother-in-law that helped me see this trial in this verse. Because she went through something similar. And has allowed me to, to share parts of her story. She has been so open with it herself. I'm amazed by my parents-in-law and Job and Mrs. Job. They've been through so many things together, including the loss of faith on my mother-in-law's part, mostly because of what she went through being married to Job all those years, wondering how could God do this to him to our children, to our family, to me. 
Because every trial that he went through, she went through right alongside him. Until it left her cursing God and wanting to die herself. And both of those instances were very literal for her. I'm grateful that the book of Job has a happy ending and grateful that the story for my parents-in-law is beautifully happy right now too. With my mother-in-law having fully returned to the church, rebaptized after having had her name removed from the records. Oh, a woman of incredible faith and incredible fortitude, despite everything that she's been through. I believe that the same was true of Job's wife. But this moment, she reached her breaking point. And, and who can blame her? I don't get a sense that Job ever does. But the fact that he has to see her go through this, and that she doesn't hold to the faith that's going to see him through it, that has to be a brutally difficult trial for him as well. And yet he perseveres. He says to her in verse 10, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What, shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? In other words, we have to trust him no matter what he sends our way. Naked were we both when we came into the world. Naked will we both be when we leave. In all this, the verse ends, did not Job sin with his lips? Well, not with his lips, but I do wonder, what about your heart, Job? That's the part I can't quite see. You were the one that was concerned and repented just in case, or offered sacrifice for sin just in case your children sinned in their hearts. What's happening in yours? Well, we're going to see a lot of the heart wrestle in the next few chapters, but something has to happen before we get there. And the way chapter 2 ends, you see, this would have been a perfect ending. It would have gone a perfect parallel with chapter 1. And we've seen so many parallels between chapter 2 and chapter 1, literarily, that ending right there with Job's statement of faith, that's exactly how chapter 1 ended. And yet, to complicate matters and to, to thicken the plot, chapter 2 ends with the coming of his friends. They're the ones that are going to be behind this long epic poem, this discussion of theodicy. And so we need to meet them here. In verse 11, when Job's three friends... And yes, that's what they were. When they heard of all this evil that was come upon him, they came everyone from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, Zophar the Naamathite, for they had made an appointment together to come to mourn with him and to comfort him. Now, just like our first impression of Job was incredibly positive, our first impression of these three men should be positive as well. They are introduced as friends. And they seem to be exactly that. They've made an appointment together. Let's do strength in numbers. Job's going to need all the support he can get. So let's come together and mourn with him and comfort him. And let's do it in that order. If you remember the baptismal promise, the covenant in Mosiah 18, we promise, among other things, to mourn with those that mourn and comfort those that stand in need of comfort. And the order there is key. I'm usually guilty of getting, can we get past the morning as quickly as possible? I just don't like the downer. Can we, let's get on and let's fix it. Okay, so let's comfort those that stand in need of comfort. And yet without the empathy and the understanding at first, then my solutions tend to, to fall short. These three friends are better than I am at that. But there's also a problem in what they said when they heard of this evil that was come upon him. Now, forgive me if I'm reading too much into this, but 
evil because they're going to go there mentally pretty quick. And I can't blame them because that is their culture. That is their worldview. And the idea, like we saw before, if you keep the commandments, you prosper in the land. Well, if you're not prospering in the land, it must be because you haven't been keeping the commandments. Sin equals suffering. Sin will always bring suffering. Therefore, reverse it. Anytime you see suffering, it must be the result of sin. And what do they call this? This is evil that has come upon Job. And since God isn't evil, then it must be Job's evil that's behind all of this. Now, they're not saying any of that, not yet anyway, but they'll get there far too quickly. Verse 12, when they lifted up their eyes afar off, they knew him not. That's how unrecognizable Job was in his agony. They lifted up their voice and wept, mingling their tears with his own. They rent everyone his mantle, just like he had done. They sprinkled dust upon their heads toward heaven. This is true empathy. This is true calm passion, calm with passion, suffering, feeling. And they're willing to sit with him in the dirt, among the ashes, perhaps taking a turn at the potsherd, trying to offer Job whatever empathy they can. In verse 13, so they sat down with him upon the ground seven days, seven nights, and none spake a word unto him, for they saw that his grief was very great. I worry that all too often we don't go and sit with people because we don't know what to say. We don't get around to comforting them because we don't know how to mourn with them. And words just fall short. What am I supposed to say? I love the end of chapter 2 because these friends, and friends they were indeed, they knew they didn't need to say anything. None of that would have helped or changed anything anyway. And so often when people are suffering, it's not our words that they need. It's simply our company. A shoulder to cry on, not a mouth to lecture them with. And the fact they did it for seven days and seven nights, such a great symbol of totality, of completeness, perhaps hoping that by then Job will be all cried out. Well, chapter 3, this is where the poem begins. And this is where the real drama, the real wrestling begins to unfold. Verse 1, After this opened Job his mouth and cursed but what did he curse? He cursed his day, not his God. Huge difference. I'm cursing my circumstance. I'm cursing, just lamenting, weeping, mourning over what I'm going through. But I am not shaking my fist heavenward. It's okay to recognize we're having a bad day. It's okay to, to mourn that life is so difficult, but he's not cursing God here. Instead, he spake and said, let the day perish wherein I was born, and the night in which it was said, there is a man-child conceived. He continues that same lamentation for several more verses, and each one is one more instance of cursing his life and cursing the day he was born. I wish it had never come. It's become, life itself has become too much to bear. In verse 11, why died I not from the womb? Why did I not give up the ghost when I came out of the belly? If I had died before all of this adversity, I could have been buried like the kings 
with all of my glory behind me, I could have been stillborn and never had to face the difficulties of life to begin with. Throughout this entire chapter, he envies the dead. He, he longs for the grave. In verse 17, he says, There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary be at rest. There the prisoners rest together. They hear not the voice of the oppressor. By then the test will be over. No wicked Sabaeans or Chaldeans. No, no more tears. The book of Revelation promises that God will wipe all of those away. But here in this veil of sorrows, this time of tears, I'm suffering it all. And why can't it come to an end? I don't know if you've ever had an experience or being pushed to the point where the fourth verse of Come, Come, Ye Saints actually makes sense. Where you could actually feel with those pioneers the sentiment behind the statement, and should we die before our journey's through, happy day, all is well. How on earth could their own premature death be happy? The next line, we then are free from toil and sorrow too. With the just we shall dwell. If you've never felt that, congratulations that life has been <laughs> fairly pleasant. Without the kinds of difficulties that make death look like a welcome relief, and I'm not talking suicide here. That is a different thing. That is, that's mental illness by and large. Because if there's one thing that lies at the core of all living beings, it's the desire to hold on to life at all costs. I'm convinced that thoughts of suicide are signs that something is not quite right mentally. And those that suffer in, those, in that way deserve all of our compassion and empathy and help, support, hospitalization, whatever it takes. Actually, read the next few verses and we'll see where Job is on this. Verse 20, he says, Wherefore is light given to him that is in misery, and life unto the bitter in soul, which long for death, but it cometh not, and dig for it more than for hid treasures, which rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they can find the grave. This is an incredibly difficult passage to navigate. Because it seems that Job is as close to suicidal ideation as anyone I think you'll ever see in Scripture. We saw suicide already with Saul, for example. But here Job, this perfect man, upright, eschewing evil, eschews that evil. Or he could have committed suicide. He refuses to. And that says to me, again, something about the force of his character. If this is what I must suffer, then so be it. I just wish it wasn't. I wish that, that it could end. But I'm not going to take matters into my own hands. And if you are suffering and struggling with suicidal thoughts, then please seek professional help. Seek the companionship of friends immediately. Get your three friends to come and mourn with you and comfort you. Or just sit with you, even if it's seven days of silence. I'm grateful that the, the, the world is taking this so much more seriously. 
and that there is a 988 that hopefully will become as easily memorized as a 911 with a suicide hotline that people can call to get whatever kind of help and relief that they need. No, Job is not suicidal here, but he's at an interesting place. And if you've never been there, then again, congratulations on a life that hasn't yet been hard enough for you to commiserate with Job here and come with miserate. Misery is probably the appropriate term. There's an interesting contrary to prove between loving life and seeing its end as a welcome relief. I know that often happens to the old and to those who have, are, are in a state of suffering. My, my saintly grandma was at that point in her late 90s and just had lived a, a full life and joyful and optimistic throughout it all despite her own trials. But by the end, she was ready to move on and was never suicidal. That wasn't it, but it was a thought of, I have loved the journey and I can't wait to arrive at my destination. It's been an incredible experience, but what a relief when, it, when I'm done. Passing on or passing the test. Oh, that's, that's a commencement ceremony with good times ahead on the other side of the veil. And Job just wants to get there. Happy day, all is well because toil and sorrow are behind me. In verse 25, he says, For the thing which I greatly feared is come upon me, and that which I was afraid of is come unto me. I was not in safety, neither had I rest, neither was I quiet, yet trouble came. The ending of chapter 3 there lets us know we need to add another entry to our list of lamentations. The things that Job has gone through. And according to this one, it's the thing I greatly feared. I mean, he's shifted pretty abruptly from this, this longing for death, this cursing his own existence. I would have preferred to have been stillborn. But then to go to this last fear of, I don't fear death. I welcome it. What I feared was suffering so intensely. What I feared was loss because that's what I'm, I've gone through. The way he says it, I was not in safety, neither had I rest, neither was I quiet. Which lets you know that even during his days of blessedness, he struggled with a concern over it being taken away. That's, I think, a detail about Job that we typically, that goes unrecognized. But that admission there at the end of chapter 3 is fascinating. This dread of sorrow that got in the way of his times of happiness. That this fear over loss interfering with how much he could enjoy the gain. For those who suffer with mental illness, I think even worse than anxiety is being anxious about being anxious. And even worse than depression is being depressed about your depression. It's, it's like one step beyond and intensifies it because even when things are going well and you're not suffering from your anxiety, when you start to get anxious that I'm going to have another panic attack, then, then the bad times have ruined the good. 
And even when you're not feeling as depressed as usual, your depression over the possibility of depression starts to, to factor in. And it ruins things. Job suffered with that even during his good times. So how do you, how do you navigate that? In fact, how do you make sense of that, especially when your worldview is sin and suffering are synonymous? We will see that unfold in the next 30 chapters or so. Because by the time you start with chapter 4, we saw the prose introduction uh, and the scene is set. In chapter 3, the poem begins and you get a, a glimpse into Job's heart and mind as he's wrestling with how hard life has become to the point that it's become unlivable and he longs for the grave. Now chapter 4 and, and beyond, we're going to see his three friends finally speak up. After seven days of silence, they now break it. And what you'll see as far as the organization of the book of Job is it goes friend back to Job, friend two back to Job, friend three back to Job, and then do it again. And then do it again. And there are, that's why the book is so long. This epic poem is so epic. You have three rounds of the three friends and Job going back and forth, wrestling with that mental mentality that sin is suffering. So notice how Eliphaz uh, discusses it in chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If we essay to commune with thee, in other words, if we try to speak, wilt thou be grieved? Ah, but who can withhold himself from speaking? Now he's checking in to see, is it time to shift from mourning to comforting? Maybe he's a little like me, and it's like, can, can we move on now? I mean, it's been seven days. That was supposed to be completeness and totality. Are we good? And he doesn't even wait for an answer. That's his mistake. He just, I, I can't withhold. I've, I've just got to go. I unfortunately did that to my daughter once, where she had got some bad, she'd received some bad news, and I spent the first day, in the morning stage. But by day two, I was ready to move on and fix things. And so I basically was Eliphaz there and said, hey, um, if I commune with thee, will you be grieved? I should have asked. She would have said, yes, so don't commune yet. I unfortunately started communing. Uh, and when I saw her reaction, I, I quickly retreated and said, uh, you liked yesterday better? She's all, uh-huh, okay, sorry. I'll be back whenever you need me. Uh, in the meantime, I'll, I'll just mourn with those that mourn. Well, what does he say? Verse 3, Behold, thou hast instructed many, and thou hast strengthened the weak hands. That's good news. Thy words have upholded him that was falling, and thou hast strengthened the feeble knees. I wish he would have ended there and just congratulated Job on such a good life. Instead, he goes on, But now it is come upon thee, and thou faintest. It touches thee, and thou art troubled. Is not this thy fear, thy confidence, thy hope, and the uprightness of thy ways? In other words, Job, you talked the talk all those years of blessedness. Don't you think you should walk the walk now that times have gotten rough? I mean, if your words of faith and testimony were exactly that, your confidence and your hope, then replay them in your own ears. And think about all the things you said to people that were suffering. I've basically come to just mirror yourself and try to let yourself preach from the pulpit of memory, as Elder Maxwell used to say, to convince you that what you said to others was true. 
and it applies equally in your own case. Now, even that, if he would have stopped, would have been better than what he goes on to. Because in seven, he falls back into his flawed, shallow mentality, his stage one perspective on sin and suffering. He says in verse seven, remember, I pray thee, whoever perished being innocent, or where were the righteous cut off? Even as I have seen, they that plow iniquity and sow wickedness reap the same. Now that's the first explicit statement of that, the prevailing ideology in the book of Job. And we've seen it already throughout the Old Testament. We see it throughout the Book of Mormon. We probably grew up feeling that way ourselves because it's true to a point. This is simply the law of the harvest, right? Wickedness never was happiness. Uh, if you sow the wind, you'll reap the whirlwind. Now, so far, this isn't an explicit condemnation of Job, at least not specifically listing sins. We'll get there, unfortunately. This is more of the vague generalization, like, well, you know, Job, uh, as I'm sure you've taught to other people as well, uh, if you do bad things, then bad things come back to haunt you. And so uh, I'll, I'll just leave it at that. But this subtle insinuation that, Job, you're probably to blame here. After all, verse 17, shall mortal man be more just than God? I mean, I know first impressions were amazing back in Job 1 verse 1, but your perfection doesn't match God's perfection. Your uprightness isn't quite that lofty. So he goes on, shall a man be more pure than his maker? The assumed answer is no. Behold, he put no trust in his servants, and his angels he charged with folly, how much less in them that dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, which are crushed before the moth. Job, my friend, we are nothing. We're less than the dust of the earth. We're less than the moths. We're le certainly less than the angels, which means we are infinitely less than God. So, whatever you did, and I'm not going to point fingers much, just repent of it, and I'm sure all will be well. He says more of the same in chapter 5. In verse 1, call now, if there be any that will answer thee, and to which of the saints wilt thou turn? I mean, Job, who's going to plead your case? The holy ones, those saints, know that we aren't perfectly holy, and we get what we deserve. It's what's happening to you right now, for whatever it was that you did. Uh, I, the pleading your case, I don't know if you'll be able to find a, an adequate defense attorney uh, an advocate that will be able to get you off the hook. In verse 6, although affliction cometh not forth of the dust, it doesn't just arise out of nowhere, neither doth trouble spring out of the ground. Yet man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. Again, he's just reiterating cause and effect. If you're suffering, there must be some reason. And if you didn't know already, the reason is the natural unrighteousness of man. I'm not trying to make you feel bad. It's what we all deal with, okay? It's part of the mortal condition. Sin is, which means suffering is, since sin and suffering are synonymous. In verse 8, I would seek unto God, and unto God would I commit my cause, which doeth great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. Well, that's a beautiful testimony of God. And if you just would have left it at that, just commit your cause to God, 
who does great things. But I do wonder also if there's some hint of accusation there. It'll become more than a hint later on. But Job, you must be falling short of the divine standard. Otherwise, you wouldn't be going through what you're going through. In verse 12, he, meaning God, disappointeth the devices of the crafty, so that their hands cannot perform their enterprise. He taketh the wise in their own craftiness, and the counsel of the froward is carried headlong. They meet with darkness in the daytime and grope in the noonday as in the night. Now, I really want to agree with you, Eliphaz, and to a large degree, you're, you're right. God does disappoint the devices of the crafty. The wicked do end up having to pay the piper. But the problem is that doesn't always happen immediately. And so, yes, you're right, but is that always the case in the short term? Because unfortunately, look around, and it seems that sometimes the wicked do prosper. And sometimes the righteous do seem to suffer. And so your simplified approach to sin equals suffering seems to be short-sighted. There's got to be more to this than just that simplified version. So Job, verse 17, be happy. Because behold, happy is the man whom God correcteth. Therefore despise not thou the chastening of the Almighty. For he maketh sore and bindeth up. He woundeth and his hands make whole. I actually really like Eliphaz for the most part. He is a friend and he's trying to be a good one to Job. There's amazing truth in what he just said. Happy is the man that God correcteth. Because what's the correcting for? What's amazing about a call to repentance is it's, it's a message of hope. It's a declaration of confidence that I know you can change. I know you want to. And although the pain that your, your sin has caused you has not been pleasant, oh, if it moves you in the right direction, then it was all worth it. Yes, I've made you sore, but I'm here to bind you up. That's... You can say that to pain. Now, pain alerted us that something wrong was happening to our body, and then we can go get the help that we need. The same is true of guilt. Guilt is to the spirit what pain is to the body. And when our nerves are, are exposed to that pain, when our conscience is pricked by that guilt, it lets us know we're leaning on the, on the stove. Get your hand off it because it'll burn. My grandma lost feeling in her finger because of a, uh, an accident once. And I thought, I was jealous at the time because she had no feeling in her fingertip. They were able to sew it back all to, on, but the nerve damage was done. And I remember thinking, that would be so cool. Like, like, a, like a superpower. No pain to be felt at all. Until I realized the problem with that. Pain is my friend if it alerts me to get away from what's causing it. And so, yes, I'm sorry about your soreness, but I'm here to bind you up. I'm sorry for your wounds, but I am wholeness, and I've come to help. Like I said, that is good advice, especially based on the, their understanding of the law of the harvest. The problem was it didn't apply in Job's case, and Job knew it. Now, what we're about to see in chapter 6 is Job's first rebuttal. And it's going to go back and forth between the three friends over and over and over. And it always comes back to Job defending himself. But the irony of Job's defense is that it proves that he had the same misperception that his friends did. 
he believed, just like they did, just like Lehi did, just like the Deuteronomy does, just like most of us do in our childhood, that sin is suffering and, and immediate consequences and everything else. It's black and white, and that's just how it works. And bad guys suffer, and good guys prosper, and, and there's nothing in between. The difference between Job and his friends was the, the angle they were approaching things from. They both looked at things that sin equals suffering. The difference was the friends saw the suffering and therefore assumed the sin, whereas Job knew there was no sin and therefore questioned the suffering. You understand what I'm saying? It's amazing once you realize that they agreed on their premises. They just came to different conclusions because of the different experiences or, or, or perceptions that they had. Uh, in the friend's case, I, I see you suffering. What did you do wrong? Just repent. The Lord is chastening you. So be happy that he, he thinks that you're worth correcting. Be, appreciate this redemptive turbulence, as Elder Maxwell used to call it. Whereas Job is still befuddled here because I don't deserve what I'm going through. And he was right. Go back to chapter 1 and chapter 2. The problem is Job it never read chapter 1 and chapter 2 of his own book. And neither did his friends. Uh, they're unaware about the the conversation between Satan and God. They're unaware that this is a test to see what you'll do without the hedge, that this is mortal life. And you're meant to be stretched and pulled and sometimes almost broken so that you become something, something amazing through the process. We are lucky to have read chapter one and two to know what's going on. It's like any play or movie where the audience has been made aware of certain things that the people, the characters on the stage don't know about. You almost want to yell up to them, he's the bad guy. He's, the one, he's, he's, he's conspiring against you. But no, we can't. Okay, And so here, Job, in his ignorance of, of the cause of his suffering, and his friends, ignorant of Job's innocence, no wonder they're struggling and no wonder they can't see eye to eye because of their opposing angles, even though they share the same underlying belief. That's, that was mind-blowing to me when I realized, whoa, they have the same misconception. So see how Job responds in chapter 6, verse 1. But Job answered and said, Oh, that my grief were thoroughly weighed. And my calamity laid in the balances together. For now it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore my words are swallowed up. For the arrows of the Almighty are within me. The poison whereof drinketh up my spirit. The terrors of God do set themselves in array against me. Job is suffering. The arrows of the Almighty? Poison tipped and all. And he has brought me so low that I long for the grave. I wish you knew just what I was going through. I would take all of my trials and lay them on the balance and you would see just how crushing they are. But what he's wondering with that balance and scales metaphor is what's on the other side? On the, on the one side of the balance are all my griefs and all of my sorrows and sufferings. And they are heavier than the sands of the sea which would suggest that since the balances are always supposed to be equal, sin equals suffering, righteousness equals blessedness, that truth has carried me through my life and I've been perfect and upright and I was the greatest of all the men of the East. 
for not, but now for my suffering to be that heavy, then my sin would have to be equally heavy. That's the only way it works. That's, how, that's what justice demands, an even balance. And the scales are skewed. Something's off. Because I have done nothing to deserve the kind of suffering that I'm enduring here. In verse 8, he says, Oh, that I might have my request, and that God would grant me the thing that I long for, even that it would please God to destroy me, that he would let loose his hand and cut me off. Then should I have comfort, yea, I would harden myself in sorrow. Let him not spare, for I have not concealed the words of the Holy One. We're back to this idea of longing for death, because life has become unlivable. I actually read this once in a, a study of suicide that often people who contemplate it, it's not because they value life too little. It's because in some ways they value life too much. Too much to allow it to continue in the condition that it's in at that time. That I know what life is supposed to be. Life is supposed to be good. Life is supposed to have hope and meaning and purpose. And mine doesn't. And rather than just slog through or suffer through a life that doesn't measure up to what life is supposed to be, I have to end it. And again, that mentality is flawed. It is deeply flawed. And therapy or medication or hospitalization or just help. Seek it if you're in that situation. But what Job is, is wrestling with here is this same sense of what life is supposed to be. And it isn't. Up to this point, the balances have always stayed steady. I know how it's supposed to work. And it's worked right. It's just not working now. His sense of justice is now being tested. Remember Javert, when he did commit suicide because mercy came into his life and he couldn't handle it? A, a, an unbending justice with no ability to prove a contrary? Well, Job is wrestling with this same kind of, of concern. Add it to the list of his adversities. That all of a sudden now my own worldview is coming crushing down. Talk about a faith crisis. And it's not a, faith, a, a crisis of faith in God. He's not cursing him. But he's, it's a faith crisis that something's amiss in the workings of reality. And I'm being punished for sins I never committed. Something's off here. He then turns back to his friend Eliphaz and says to him in 14, to him that is afflicted, pity should be showed from his friend. So in the midst of my, of my devastation, please don't lecture me. I, pr I preferred the silence. Thank you very much. Just empathize. Just offer compassion. And in fact, if you're going to lecture, you could at least allow your principles to be true. In verse 24, he says, Teach me, and I will hold my tongue. Cause me to understand wherein I have erred. How forcible are right words, but what doth your arguing reprove? Your message is falling on deaf ears because it doesn't apply to me. All these things you've said about the wicked suffering because of their wickedness, I totally agree, Eliphaz. They just don't apply because I'm not the wicked one. I know the balances are supposed to stay straight. They always have in my life. They're just not working right now. So if I've, you think I've done something wrong, help me. Well, believe me, I'd love to know 
What's in my blind spot that I haven't been aware of? I search out blind spots. I offer burnt sacrifices just in case. Uh, the first impression was correct. I'm perfect and upright. I eschew evil every time. And so help me understand wherein I have erred because I don't see any of it. He says in verse 30, is there iniquity in my tongue? Cannot my taste discern perverse things? Again, show me where I've been wrong. I would know it. I have sufficient discernment to recognize when I'm doing something that I shouldn't. I would taste it if I've done wrong. But there is no bitterness in my mouth as far as sin is concerned. Only the bitterness that comes from suffering. And it's the undeserved kind. Job continues in chapter 7. He says in verse 4, When I lie down, I say, When shall I arise? And the night be gone. I am full of tossings to and fro unto the dawning of the day. My flesh is clothed with worms and clods of dust. My skin is broken and become loathsome. His catalog of calamities keeps growing longer and longer. For people who suffer often sleep is their one welcome relief. And yet it wasn't for Job. From sunup to sundown, it's suffering. But from sundown to sunup, it's tossing to and fro. Imagine, again, boils from the sole of the foot to the crown of the head. Is there any place that you can get comfortable? Among the potsherds and ashes? Have you ever had a night that you just wished would end? And you were praying for the dawn? In verse 13, he goes on, When I say my bed shall comfort me, my couch shall ease my complaint, that doesn't work either, because then thou scarest me with dreams and terrifies me through visions. Even when sleep does finally come, it doesn't last, because I'm being haunted by nightmares. There is no escaping. I told you that Satan got the green light and was going to push him to the very brink of death, so close to the edge that Job himself was hoping that God would push him over it. But no, he stays there, there's one thing about trials. There's another thing about the, the irony of those trials. There's another thing about the unfairness of those trials. There's another thing about the length and persistence of those trials. So often, if we just knew the end date, if we knew how long they were going to last, then we could try to endure them well. But when there seems to be no end in sight, no escaping them, I can't sleep when I do. I have nightmares that wake me back up. And I, who knows how long this is going to last. No wonder he says in verse 11, Therefore I will not refrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. We need this, by the way. We need this view of Job. We missed it in chapter 1 when the verb was worship. It hadn't intensified yet to the point where Job was to his breaking point. We all seem to have one. What does it take to get someone to complain against God? In the Book of Mormon, Sariah's case, it was the thought of losing her sons. In Lehi's case, it was the thought of being unable to provide for his family. In Nephi's case, it was the thought of not being able to keep the family together to maintain the unity his father had begged him to preserve before he died. We all have something that gets us to a point of wondering, 
What's, what's the point of it all? And for Job, he'd gotten there. He complained in the bitterness of his soul. Still not cursing God, though. Notice what he says instead. 17, what is man that thou shouldst magnify him and that thou shouldst set thine heart upon him? He's crying to God with this. That thou shouldst visit him every morning and try him every moment. He's getting closer to the truth here. Try him every moment? Is he learning that life is meant to be a test? I don't think he quite gets it yet, but these words are foreshadowing something, a realization that will come later. The way he phrases those verses, though, who am I that you would even care? It's one thing to be surprised that God cares about us enough to bless us. This is the opposite. It's to be surprised that God cares enough to make us suffer. That he cares enough to try us and to stretch us and to prove us. Just kick me off the team, coach. I'm not good. Oh no, I want to keep you on the team and run another lap and do another drill because I believe in you. Why? I'm nothing. Why would you set your heart upon me? This magnificent book gives us such fascinating insight into the nature of the human experience, into the character of God, how God feels about us, how we should feel about God, what suffering does to add some heat and intensity to the mix. It's amazing, this message. Why would you care enough to bless us or curse us? Because God loves us and believes in us and wants us to come home having become more like him through our trials. In verse 20, Job makes an interesting admission. I have sinned. Fine, let me admit that. Although I don't know how, I, I guess I must have based on the fact that I'm suffering. I'm not guilty of the things that my friends are, might accuse me of, but maybe there's something back there. Again, I'm trusting the balance here. But then this, what shall I do unto thee, O thou preserver of men? Why hast thou set me as a mark against thee, so that I am a burden to myself? And why dost thou not pardon my transgression and take away mine iniquity? For now shall I sleep in the dust, and thou shalt seek me in the morning, but I shall not be. I think what Job is getting at there is, I don't know how much longer I'll last. I don't know how long, much longer my, my body will allow this to, to happen. And if you're hoping to forgive me, then let it happen. Because I don't know how much longer I'll have. There's a sense of what have I done in the past and what am I supposed to do in my present. But also a sense of I have no future. So if this is meant to scour the soul, then finish the job as quickly as you can. Because I want this to end. But what doesn't end is the conversation. Eliphaz is done. Job is done responding to him. But now Bildad comes in. And friend number two speaks up in chapter 8 and says in verse 1, How long wilt thou speak these things? How long shall the words of thy mouth be like a strong wind? Doth God pervert judgment, or doth the Almighty pervert justice? Quit trying to justify yourself before God, Job. It will get you nowhere. I mean, Eliphaz was right. You're lower than the angels, lower than the dust. And let me reiterate that. God must move in the opposite direction. God is above the dust, and above man, and above the angels, and above all things, he doesn't get things wrong. But again, because I share the same underlying premise, the fact that God doesn't get anything wrong 
And the fact that you're suffering suggests that you're in the wrong. You've done wrong and you deserve the suffering because you're guilty of the sin. In verse 5, he says, If thou wouldst seek unto God betimes, and make thy supplication to the Almighty, if thou wert pure and upright, which obviously you aren't, surely now he would awake for thee, and make the habitation of thy righteousness prosperous. Oh, there's another nod to the sin equals suffering mentality. Another pointing toward the prosperity gospel. Again, there's truth there, but not a fullness of truth. We've only got half the contrary. We've got to prove the other side. In verse 8, For inquire, I pray thee, of the former age. Prepare thyself to the search of their fathers. For we are but of yesterday, and know nothing, because our days upon earth are a shadow. Shall not they teach thee, and tell thee, in other words, out of their heart? You see, we have to learn from the past, Job. Because none of us live long enough to master all of life's lessons in a single lifetime. So, inquire of the former age. And what will they tell you? They'll tell you that sin equals suffering. They'll tell you of the, the natural depravity of the natural man. And so, you're old enough to have learned this experientially. Not just from our history lessons, but either way, you need to realize that you're deserving of whatever it is that you go through. Bildad then mentions plants that wither and die, and then says in verse 13, so are the paths of all that forget God. They wither and die. And the hypocrite's hope shall perish, whose hope shall be cut off and whose trust shall be a spider's web. There is no hope without the rope of the Redeemer. And you are hanging by a thread, Job. It's beginning to unravel as we speak. And so lay hold upon the Redeemer himself. Repent of whatever sins you might be guilty of. Just change. After all, verse 20, God will not cast away a perfect man, neither will he help the evildoers. There's justice on both sides. The wicked will suffer. The righteous will prosper. God does not cast away perfections, which means you must not be perfect. Job chapter 1 verse 1 notwithstanding. And yet Job knows chapter 1 verse 1. He knows that much about himself. And so he responds in chapter 9 with self-defense. Verse 1, Job answers and said, I know it is so of a truth, but how should man be just with God? If he will contend with him, he cannot answer him one of a thousand. I'll see your argument. I'll even honor it. You're not telling me anything I don't already know. I agree with that. It just doesn't apply to me because I've been righteous. How can man be just with God? I've spent my life aiming for exactly that. When he says he cannot answer him one of a thousand, remember that though. Because by the end of the book of Job, God will have some answers for Job, not quite, excuse me, some questions for Job, not quite a thousand of them, but no matter how many there are or few, Job can't answer them at all. He cannot answer him one of a thousand, even though he wants to contend with God over these things. That, there's some hints being dropped at the beginning of chapter 9 that we'll see come to fruition later on. But he keeps speaking of God in verse 4. Job says, he is wise in heart, there's God's omniscience, and mighty in strength, there's God's omnipotence. Who hath hardened himself against him and hath prospered? <laughs> there's a good question to consider, Job. One you need to keep wrestling with. 
What good does it do to curse God? What good does it do to contend against him, to harden yourself against him? Because his, he's omnipotent. You can't get around that. He's omniscient. He knows better than you. And if Job would simply hold on to that, we'd be okay. The problem is the longer these trials last and the longer he suffers with the injustice of it all, the scales are not balanced. Something is off. Oh, he's going to get closer and closer, not to cursing God, but yes, wanting to contend with him. Now, his testimony is still strong to this point. In verse 5, he speaks of the God which removeth the mountains, and they know not, which overturneth them in his anger, which shaketh the earth out of her place, and the pillars thereof tremble, which commandeth the sun, and it riseth not, and sealeth up the waters, which alone spreadeth out the heavens, and treadeth upon the waves of the sea, which maketh Arcturus, Orion, and Pleiades, and the chambers of the south. While we're getting our geology lesson, our astronomy lesson, Remember this for future reference. Job is turning to the creation for his evidence of God. His omnipotence and his omniscience, which he just mentioned a verse before, it's all, all things are created and made to bear witness of him. All things are a testimony that God lives and that things are in perfect order. Then why isn't this, why isn't my life in perfect order. It has been to this point. It no longer is. He goes on in verse 10, which doeth great things past finding out, yea, wonders without number. That is a hugely important admission. We don't always know what God is doing. He does great things past finding out. It's amazing that by the end of this book, Job could almost review his message and see that he'd been preaching himself the correct sermon all along. It doesn't totally dawn on him yet just how applicable these words are to his own circumstance. But he's closer to the truth than we realize. I think that's often the case with us as well. He adds in verse 12, Behold, he taketh away. Who can hinder him? Obviously, I can't since he's taken away everything that belonged to me. Who will say unto him, what doest thou? And yet he's beginning to wonder, why do we second guess omniscience? Well, because there's times we, we feel like we know better than he does. Why do we demand that God explain himself? Well, because sometimes we think he's got things all wrong. In verse 14, how much less shall I answer him and choose out my words to reason with him? Whom, though I were righteous, yet would I not answer, but I would make supplication to my judge. Now we'll see about 30 chapters from now. It would have been wiser for Job to hold on to the exact things he's saying in this chapter. Honoring God's omnipotence and his omniscience. Not calling into question his moral governance of the universe. Like he says here, who am I to answer God? I'm nobody. Uh, how would I even make supplication to my judge when the judge of all the earth does right? Even if I were righteous, how would I answer? Well, that's hold to that, Job, because you keep holding to your righteousness and you're justified in doing so. But you do end up wanting to call out God and you're not justified in that. In verse 19, he says, if I speak of strength, lo, he is strong. And if of judgment, who shall set me a time to plead? 
If I justify myself, mine own mouth shall condemn me. If I say I am perfect, it shall also prove me perverse. Though I were perfect, yet would I not know my soul. I would despise my life. These are profound truths that, like I said, I wish Job had held onto more strongly. When he speaks of judgment and wanting a time to plead, he's going to start demanding that. I do want to make judgment against the judge. What we're going to see in, in upcoming chapters is that Job basically wants to sue God for malpractice because the scales are off. The balance that's always been correct and I've been playing the game correctly and winning it, well, now it's no longer working. And so something's off and you've got some explaining to do. My friends keep saying I've got some explaining to do because of my so-called sin that's caused my suffering. But I think actually, God, you've got some explaining to do for my suffering since there's been no sin. So I don't get it. But at this point, there's still enough humility to acknowledge, man, if I tried something like that, my own mouth would condemn me. What, am I going to be my own defense attorney? Well, yeah, that's what you're going to become later on. Though I were perfect, yet would I not know my soul? That's an amazing insight as well. Even if I were perfect, even if I were sinless, flawless, would I be completely self-aware? Because that's not really sin, because that's blind spots. That's sinning in ignorance, or just ignorance of self that isn't sinful. But do I really know who I am? To me, there's something profound about realizing just how self-aware God wants us to become. An awareness of who we are in relation to Him, who we are in relation to one another, who we are in relation to our best selves. And mere perfection, I know that phrase sounds strange, because, wait, perfection, that's not, nothing mere about that. Well, compared to, <laughs> to, compared to God, then even the sinlessness in life, and I'm not saying that Job was absolutely sinless, but if he's our perfect type, uh, someone who's meant to personify that. Even that isn't necessarily completely self-aware. And when we talked about creation, fall, atonement, and I've mentioned that the elevation of the atonement far surpasses the elevation of Eden. We had to go down, but then we go up. And not just upward, backward, but upward, forward to something that far surpassed the original. And what I'm getting at is the innocence of Eden is surpassed by the holiness of the atonement. And part of this about, even if I were perfect, but remained in the Garden of Eden, that was an ignorant and innocent bliss. But I had to learn. And I had to come to know my soul as I passed out of Eden and went east of Eden and went through the valley of the shadow of death, but then turned to life himself and became more like him. I found that he was the, the embodiment of everything I was supposed to be. I came to know my soul by coming to rely on His. There's something about that growth, something about that pro progress. And Job isn't there yet. None of us are. But that's the goal. That's what God is moving us toward. Verse 24, Job then says, The earth is given unto the hands of the wicked. So sometimes the wicked do prosper, despite what you've been saying, my friends. He covereth the faces of the judges thereof. 
So sometimes justice isn't served in this life. He's starting to have a more nuanced perspective on the scales of justice here. He just doesn't yet see how they apply it to him. If not, he says, where and who is he? Other translations make that. If it's not God that's behind all this, then who? You see, Job is beginning to question the prevailing wisdom that sin equals suffering automatically and immediately. Sometimes the wicked do win, though that doesn't really make sense. Plus, you friends have told me what I agree on, which is that humanity is inherently depraved. But then again, if that's the case, and I deserve what I've gotten, then what's the point of even trying? That's what Job says near the end of this chapter, verse 29. If I be wicked, why then labor I in vain? If there's nothing I can do about my fallen nature anyway, then why try? But people can change. That's the beauty of it all. God, in fact, changes our nature. And that's what he's trying to do with you, Job. You just didn't realize how much perfecting you still needed when you were content at that level of perfection back in chapter 1. And so allow me to shape you and mold you and, and chasten you so that I can turn you into someone like me. In verse 32, For he is not a man as I am, that I should answer him. And we should come together in judgment. Neither is there any daysman, in other words, arbiter, defense attorney, lawyer, betwixt us, that might lay his hand upon us both. You see, Job returns quickly back to the judgment, the court case metaphor. Uh, if only there were a way to do that. But where would I come up with a defense attorney? Uh, how would God and mere man come together for judgment? In some ways, he's wondering, how do you take God to court anyway, when he is judgment and justice personified? Well, let me file that away because the, the time will come where that's my ultimate desire. Chapter 10, though, he continues down this similar vein. Verse 1, my soul is weary of my life. I will leave my complaint upon myself. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say unto God, do not condemn me. Show me wherefore thou contendest with me. Here again, Job is asking God to explain himself. I am confused why I'm suffering. So please show me my sin. For most of us, that's not hard for him to do. We're well aware of it. But Job was having a harder time, and for good reason. In verse 3, he says, Is it good unto thee that thou shouldst oppress, that thou shouldst despise the work of thine hands, and shine upon the counsel of the wicked? Hast thou eyes of flesh? Or seest thou as man seeth? Now Job's really having some existential concerns here, and starting to rethink not only the, the scales of justice, but the, the eternal judge himself. Is there, some, is there something you get out of this? That it, you found it good to oppress us? Surely you're not like we are. I mean, we do those kinds of things, unfortunately. We misjudge each other, or we're harsh when we shouldn't be. We're prejudiced, or we're judgmental, or... We falsely accuse people or con condemn people for no reason, but surely my friends and I were right that you're higher than we are, that you haven't descended to our level. He says in verse 7, though, thou knowest that I'm not wicked. 
There is none that can deliver out of thine hand. Thine hands have made me and fashioned me together round about, yet thou dost destroy me. There's no higher court of appeal. But I'm getting no justice from this one. You know I'm not wicked. But who am I supposed to turn to if somehow you are going against justice? Going against yourself. In verse 14, if I sin, then thou markest me. Thou wilt not acquit me for mine iniquity. Did you catch that courtroom language? Acquittal. If I be wicked, woe unto me. That part makes sense. It's just. But, but if I be righteous, which I am, yet will I not lift up my head. I am full of confusion. And that's the key insight into Job's current state. He doesn't understand what's happening to him. Life to this point has made perfect sense. It no longer does. Therefore, he says, See thou mine affliction, for it increaseth. Thou huntest me as a fierce lion, and again, thou showest thyself marvelous upon me. Which is better translated, you display your awesome power against me. How did I become thine enemy? You have blessed me my entire life, and I've lived worthy of those blessings. You've blessed me out of justice because thou art just. What happened? I can't even lift up my head anymore. I'm full of confusion. Help me understand. And perhaps you've felt that way of wondering why bad things happen to good people, of why you have to endure what you're going through, of why people make the choices they do, and why natural disasters, and why intense pain, and why no solutions to the problems, even when I'm doing everything I possibly can to merit the blessings of God. I am full of confusion. That applies to us so often. In verse 17, back to the courtroom language, Thou renewest thy witnesses against me, and increasest thine indignation upon me. Changes and war are against me. And speaking of witnesses against him, the next one then takes the witness stand. And in chapter 11, it's Zophar's turn to speak. The third participant in round one of accusation. Verse 1, Then answered Zophar the Naamathite. He said, Should not the multitude of words be answered? Should a man full of talk be justified? In other words, are we just going to sit here and let Job go on like this? Should thy lies make men hold their peace, like we've been doing? When thou mockest, shall no man make thee ashamed? Zophar is coming with guns blazing. He's ready to rebuke Job for trying to justify himself, since all the evidence points at your guilt. He says in verse 4, Thou hast said, My doctrine is pure, and I am clean in thine eyes, but oh, that God would speak and open his lips against thee. Eventually he will, just wait. And that he would show thee the secrets of wisdom, that they are double to that which is. Know therefore that God exacteth of thee less than thine iniquity deserveth. Now that last line is almost a perfect echo of what we saw in the book of Ezra a few weeks ago. That God has punished us less than our iniquities deserve. And that's true in our case. The problem is, is it doesn't seem true in Job's case. This is innocent suffering. 
This is the theodicy. This is problem of evil. Why do bad things happen to good people? And Job's a good person. And so that last line doesn't apply. He's not exacting less of me than my iniquities deserve. He's exacting more. And I don't understand it. Well, hidden right before that statement, actually hidden in plain sight, is the truth that Job needed to hold to. And what Zophar had said was, God will show thee the secrets of wisdom. They're double to that which is. I love, once you've read through the book of Job and understood it from start to finish, then go back and reread it if you have time. (laughs) Maybe four years from now. Reread it to see the hints that were dropped all along the way. Because that's mortality too. We know more than we admit. We know more than we acknowledge. God has told us and told us time and again the truths that will get us safely home. And here's one that Job needs to hold to. God is omniscient. He knows what he's doing. Even if you don't, as long as you're more than nothing, then his double will be more than nothing too. (laughs) Okay? His wisdom is double what you could possibly imagine. The problem is, as Zophar said, they are secrets, which means only that kind of wisdom can come from God. It only comes from revelation. It comes from self-disclosure. God has to choose to reveal himself, to reveal his will, to reveal his secrets, even his secret wisdom. Thankfully, he does that when he chooses to, when we're ready for it. In verse 7, so far continues, Canst thou by searching find out God? Canst thou find out the Almighty unto perfection? It is as high as heaven. What canst thou do? Deeper than hell, what canst thou know? The measure thereof is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. Isaiah will make the same point more famously when God says that my ways are higher than thy ways. In fact, as much as the heavens are higher than the earth, yeah, that's the level of discrepancy between what you see down there and what I, the way I see it up here. But when he says, can you find him out just by searching? Is that all you think it takes? No, there is someone else on the other side of that search who has agency of his own. So like I said, if God is going to reveal himself to you, it will come because he chose to do so. Yes, do your part. Search him out. But even despite all your study, you have to experience this, which means God has to choose to participate in the experience. In this life, we see through a glass darkly. In this life, we don't know God to perfection. We just need to know that he is perfection and rest content in trusting him. But how do we come to know God in that self-revelatory way? Look at verse 13. If thou prepare thine heart and stretch out thine hands toward him, if iniquity be in thine hand, put it far away. Let not wickedness dwell in thy tabernacles, for then shalt thou lift up thy face without spot. Yea, thou shalt be steadfast, and shalt not fear, because thou shalt forget thy misery, and remember it as waters that pass away. That's beautiful advice. His friends seem to have a lot of that mixed in with their misconceptions. But prepare your heart. Stretch out thy hand. Be worthy. Be ready. Turn to him. Repent of your sins. 
Again, that's where Job's going to disagree. But everything dark about life will be eclipsed by his marvelous light. Everything miserable will be eclipsed by joy. Just come unto him. But again, that's where Job is going to push back and say, what do you think I've spent my life doing? Why do you think I worshipped at the end of chapter 1 when I thought that was it? And now I can get back back to normal things. Now it's getting harder and harder to, to trust that that's the way life works. And so he pushes back in chapter 12 and says in verse 3, But I have understanding as well as you. I'm not inferior to you. Yea, who knoweth not such things as these? Come on, Zophar. Everybody knows what you're saying. Of course God is higher than man. Obviously we have to be worthy to find him. I always have been. Verse 4, I am as one mocked of his neighbor who calleth upon God, and he answereth him. The just upright man is laughed to scorn. One more thing to add to our list. I've been doing what's right my whole life, and I've been honored for that, respected, admired, and yet now I'm mocked for it. I'm laughed to scorn. Meanwhile, the wicked get all the respect. Verse 6, the tabernacles of robbers prosper. They that provoke God are secure, into whose hand God bringeth abundantly. Everything about life seems to be going topsy-turvy, this upside-down world that doesn't make sense anymore. Life used to be fair, and it isn't anymore. Does that sound like growing up, by the way? (laughs) Going from stage one simplicity to stage two complexity and ambiguity and frustration. None of it makes sense. This is not how life is supposed to be. And Job then turns to nature as his proof. In verse 7, ask now the beasts, they'll teach thee. The fowls of the air, they shall tell thee. Or speak to the earth, and it shall teach thee. And the fishes of the sea shall declare unto thee, Who knoweth not in all these that the hand of the Lord hath wrought this? Come on, Zophar. Nature moves by fixed laws. It's predictable. Animals function on instinct, and they do what's normal for them. God made it that way. Even a fish or a fowl will tell you if they should swim or fly We're supposed to live a certain way and be blessed for it, and I have been. Something's no longer working. He goes on in chapter 13, repeating that he already knows everything his companions have said to him. But then he adds in verse 3, Surely I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to reason with God. He's getting more bold as time goes on. Again, he wants to sue the Lord for malpractice. So let's go to court. I will defend myself. But ye, he says to his friends, you're forgers of lies. Ye are all physicians of no value. Oh, that ye would altogether hold your peace, and it should be your wisdom. I mean, the book of Job is wisdom literature, and you three friends are supposed to be coming with your wisdom to to speak to me. But no, it would be more wise of you to go back to what you were doing in the earlier chapter and just sit down and shut up. Because none of what you're saying is helping. You are a physician of no value. You're doing more harm than good. So let me talk to God directly. Maybe he can explain himself. In verse 13, hold your peace. Let me alone that I may speak and let come on me what will. I'll take whatever comes. I just want to be able to defend myself. But then he says in verse 15, though he slay me, 
Remember, he just said, let come on me what will. So even death penalty. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. But I will maintain mine own ways before him. Now, that's an odd verse. The, the first two phrases are so powerful. No matter what happens, even if God... I mean, I'm longing for death, so bring it on, please. But even if it gets to that point, if he pushes me over the edge and my suffering finally becomes fatal, I will trust in him. Now, if there were a period or an exclamation point right there, then leave it and, and Job is ending on a high note. But when he adds, but I'm still going to maintain my own ways before him. There is this suggestion, but I know I'm right. In fact, maybe that's why I can trust him. I know it's going to come out Oh, in the end, I know, I don't know what's going on. I don't understand why there's some case of mistaken identity or why God is punishing me unjustly, but I know he is just. And I'm sticking to that. I will hold on to this sense of fairness that I know belongs to God. And so I'm going to trust him come what may. I just can't trust you, my so-called friends, because you keep accusing me of of iniquity that I'm not guilty of. Something's off, but it's not me. So yes, I'll maintain my own ways. I trust that, that God is going to see through your false accusation, accusations and that God will vindicate me when all is said and done. So in 17, he says, Hear diligently my speech and my declaration with your ears. Behold, now I have ordered my cause. I know that I shall be justified. Who is he that will plead with me? For now, if I hold my tongue, I shall give up the ghost. I'm ready to go serve as my own defense attorney. I'm totally confident I will be acquitted. I will be justified. I've ordered my cause. All my evidence, my witnesses. I am your honor, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen of the jury. I'm ready to be proven innocent today. So let's, let's call the court into session what he says in 22. Then call thou, and I will answer. Or let me speak, and answer thou me. Either way, God, at least we will be able to engage in the conversation. You can have the opening remarks as prosecution, or I'll take the opening as defense. But either way, let's begin to communicate. He asks, how many are mine iniquities and sins? Make me to know my transgression and my sin. Wherefore hidest thou thy face, and holdest me for thine enemy? The opening argument has begun, as far as Job is concerned. I, he couldn't wait. I deserve to know what I'm being accused of. In the American Bill of Rights, the first ten amendments to the Constitution that set in stone the most basic human rights that every American and every person on the earth deserves, the sixth one Job is calling for. It's the one that guarantees that the accused have the right to be informed of the nature and cause of the accusation and to be confronted with the witnesses against him. That's the language of the, of the Constitution. And that's what Job is demanding. Either I talk to you and you come, or you talk to me and I'll show up. But either way, I want face to face. I need to know what I've been accused of and who it is that is accusing me because I trust God, but who else is out there that's making false accusations? How can I defend myself if I don't know what I've been charged with? In verse 26, For thou writest bitter things against me, and makest me to possess the iniquities of my youth. 
Is that where this is coming from? Things that I did before I became a perfect and upright man? Oh, youthful indiscretions when I didn't eschew evil quite as much as I should? Is, is that what's happening? Dredging up things from the past that will now haunt me? Because that's all I can think of. In verse 27, Thou puttest my feet also in the stocks, and lookest narrowly upon all my paths. Thou settest a print upon the heels of my feet. That's a fascinating one. You set a print on the heels of my feet? Oh, the easier to track you with. Oh, this is putting the little tracking device, some little ankle bracelet that lets you know, lets the, the police know if you've gone outside of your parole area. Oh, I'm going to hound you and put a print on your heel so every step you take is marked so I know that it's you. Is that, is that what's happening, God? You're, you're dredging up my past. You are, you're tailing me everywhere I go to make sure I don't oh, do anything amiss. Because if that's the case, then I'm sure you'll, you'll find something. In chapter 14, he goes on, verse 1, Man that is born of a woman is a few days full of trouble. He cometh forth like a flower. He's cut down. He fleeth also as a shadow and continueth not. And dost thou open thine eyes upon such an one, and bring me into judgment with thee? To me, that draws you back to the end of chapter 13 with, why are you tailing me? Why is it all eyes on me? You know, everywhere I go with this print on my, on my heel. If I'm nothing, if man is less than the dust of the earth, if we're just going to be here for a few days, and they're troublesome ones at that, then just... Send us to wherever you're going to send us. End things. We're not worth your trouble. We're beneath your notice. He compares human life to the life of a tree. And then he says that if you cut a tree down to the stump, at least there's still a chance of regrowing. Is there any hope for me? Because I'm down to stump level. He says in verse 10, But man dieth and wasteth away. Yea, man giveth up the ghost, and where is he? Maybe we can't send forth new shoots the way a tree can. Maybe once we've been cut down, that's all there is. And if life ends with death, and death brings on what is looking now like welcome oblivion, then again, what was the point of life to begin with? It's interesting because Judaism does not have the same sense of an afterlife that Christianity does. In the Old Testament, there's very little about resurrection and heaven and so on. That's, that's more of a, of a New Testament concept. Judaism focuses more on the here and now and immediate blessings. Uh, it is kind of a stage one approach to blessing and, and curses and, and immediate responses to our actions. But what's interesting is what Job is wrestling with here is is there some point to this life of suffering and sorrow? Is there something that will come after it? Or is this all that we get? He wrestles with this question in verse 14, famous phrase, If a man die, shall he live again? All the days of my appointed time will I wait till my change come? That really is the question. Is this life 
all we get? Or will we live again? Because if this is it, then I kind of want my money back because this has been rough. I mean, I like the first however many years, but lately things have been unlivable. And so if I die, was any of this meaningful? Is it worth anything? It reminds me of the verse in 1 Corinthians 15 that I absolutely love, where Paul is defending the doctrine of the resurrection against people that are beginning to doubt it. And he says, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. So yes, if this is all we get, then yeah, it wasn't worth it. But this, that's the point. This isn't all we get. There is so much more to existence than mortal existence. If a man die, shall he live again? The Lord's answer would be a resounding yes. This life is not all you get. And so try to step back and see your trials and tribulations through an eternal perspective. It will change your attitude toward them. But verse 15, Job is still a bit confused. Thou shalt call, and I will answer thee. I do want to go face to face in the courtroom, after all. Thou wilt have a desire to the work of thine hands. At least, I hope that's the case. You must have created us for something. Do, do you want us to be with you? Do you want me to come home? For now thou numberest my steps, including the missteps, evidently. Dost thou not watch over my sin? My transgression is sealed up in a bag, and thou sowest up mine iniquity. And what those final phrases suggest is God is preserving all the evidence against him. Picture a crime scene, and the detectives or the FBI come, and they've got all these Ziploc bags to be able to put things in so that the evidence is preserved against the perpetrator. That is Job's concern by the end of chapter 14. Whatever it is, from my early youth, uh, the prince on the back of my heel, whatever it is, from fallen man, what's going to become of me as a result? Is there a purpose to all of this? Will I live again? Are you just trying to perpetuate my condemnation? Or is there some kind of hope on the other side that things can be okay? Job's not sure. But Eliphaz seems to be, because he's on to round two of his accusation. Uh, the next few chapters will we'll repeat things that we saw in the previous with each Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar going again, taking the witness stand. You want a court case? Fine, but we're witnesses against you. And now is my second chance to come up and, and rebut you. Chapter 15, Eliphaz, round two, he's much stronger than he was in the first round. He's much more vocal and accusatory than, and, than at first. He says in verse two, should a wise man utter vain knowledge and fill his belly with the east wind? East wind, by the way, is the source of destruction in the Middle East. Should he reason with unprofitable talk or with speeches wherewith he can do no good? All of these are <laughs> subtle, not, not so subtle hints at what he's accusing Job of doing. Yea, thou castest off fear and restrainest prayer before God, for thy mouth uttereth thine iniquity, and thou choosest the tongue of the crafty. Thine own mouth condemneth thee, and not I. Yea, thine own lips testify against thee. Job, do you not realize that your own self-defense is actually self-incriminating? <laughs> your sin 
is to try to come across as not having any. And so you're your own worst enemy in trying to establish this absolute innocence before innocence himself. No, you, you hold your whatever color you happen to be against that absolute brilliant pure white and your sins will be scarlet. You shouldn't have gone there. In verse 7, art thou the first man that was born? Or wast thou made before the hills? In other words, have you been lo around long enough to know everything? The answer to that is no. Hast thou heard the secret of God? And dost thou restrain wisdom to thyself? Do you know everything God knows? Like has been done before, he's pushing the, the wisdom of God in Job's direction. You're not older than he is. You're not wiser than he is. Just trust that God knows what he's doing. In verse 11, are the consolations of God small with thee? Now, specifically, Eliphaz is probably referring to the counsel that he and his two friends have already given Job. Are those consolations not sufficient? But more broadly, I wonder if he's getting at God's promises. Promises, his reassurances, do they mean nothing to you? We saw that earlier. You gave so many reassurances and promises and consolations to others. Let them come back to bless you. Or are they small with you? Oh, let them carry you through these trials. Let them convince you to repent. After all, verse 14, what is man that he should be clean? And he which is born of a woman that he should be righteous. We're all just fallen humans. Deal with it. Admit it, acknowledge it. Behold, he putteth no trust in his saints. Yea, the heavens are not clean in his sight. How much more abominable and filthy is man, which drinketh iniquity like water. There's an old joke in uh, religious circles that most doctrines are taken on faith because there's no empirical proof of things like the atonement or the resurrection and so forth. And yet, they've joked and said, but human depravity, yeah, that one is empirically verifiable. We got plenty of evidence of fallen man. We see it all over. And that's what Eliphaz seems to be getting at. And like I said, if you were to juxtapose whatever oh, purity you think you have against the purity of a perfect God, not even the heavens can measure up to God. So you drinking iniquity like water, yeah, it spills all over you. And you've got stains on your raiment like you wouldn't believe. So Job, what hope could you possibly have to defend yourself? There's no reason to keep justifying yourself, which would be true for all of the rest of us. But again, if we take seriously how Job was first presented as the ideal type of the ideal man, type and shadow of Christ, then it doesn't apply to Job. He's still going to push back. And so he does in chapter 16. Verse 1, Then Job answered and said, I've heard many such things. Miserable comforters are ye all. That's a great line to memorize if you don't like the advice a friend gives. Miserable comforter. Oh, with friends like you, who needs enemies? In verse 4, I also could speak as you do if your soul were in my soul's stead. I could heap up words against you and shake mine head at you. Yeah, go ahead, switch spots. We could have the exact same conversation. So please take your own advice. And if you want somebody to repent, then look in the mirror and repent yourself. Don't try to counsel me. In verse 10, they have gaped upon me with their mouth. 
They have smitten me upon the cheek reproachfully. They have gathered themselves together against me. God hath delivered me to the ungodly and turned me over into the hands of the wicked. Yes, Job is speaking of himself there. But read it again and think of Job as the type and shadow of Jesus. And could Christ say the same thing? They have gaped upon me with their mouth. They have smitten me upon the cheek reproachfully. They've gathered themselves together against me. God hath delivered me to the ungodly. He's turned me over into the hands of the wicked. When Jesus says from the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He's quoting the Psalms. And the psalmist there giving words, giving language to what Jesus will feel on the cross. To me, one of the most profound ways to read the book of Job is to try to find similar passages that seem to give voice to what Jesus may have felt. At least the mortal side of Jesus when he, innocence embodied, was suffering for sins he didn't commit. If you remember when we studied, what, two years ago now? In Mosiah chapter 15, that difficult passage about how Christ was able to atone. And the fact was that it came, the, the condescension and the incarnation is what informs the atonement. That he had to be son of God and son of Mary. He had to be mortal to suffer, but he had to be divine to overcome suffering. He had to be the son of Mary to die, but the son of God to live again. And the way Abinadi describes it is there's the son side, that's the mortal human side, and then there's the father side of Jesus, and that's the, the immortal and the divine. Well, what's amazing to me about the book of Job, it, once you have eyes to see, and chapter 10 is where I really started seeing it most clearly, with passages like what I just read. The book of Job is such an incredible analogy, parable, metaphor, call it what you will, type and shadow for the atonement of Christ in terms of his dual nature. Because what did we learn about Job in chapter 1? He's perfect. He's upright. He fears God. He eschews evil. Throughout this entire time, he's been defending himself, saying, I'm innocent. And while that couldn't be perfectly true in Job's case, it was perfectly true in Jesus's. And yet what is, what's happening to Job? He's suffering for as if he'd committed sins that he was not personally guilty of. Think about Christ in Gethsemane and on Calvary, suffering, suffering for sins he did not commit. Now the parallel so far is beautiful. You can add to that the fact that Job, back in chapter 1, was offering sacrifices for the sins of others, his children. And Jesus does the same. He offers himself as a sacrifice for the sins of others. Think about the fact that Satan opposed Job, just like Lucifer opposed Jehovah from premortality on. Think about the fact that Job was stripped of all of his glory, here, the greatest man of the East, the one in whom God was most well-pleased, the only begotten in the flesh, the firstborn of God in the Spirit, 
and yet he condescended. He was stripped of his flocks and herds. He was taken from his premortal divine family, sent to earth to suffer, to experience, to empathize. But if you look closely at the New Testament, the closer you get to Gethsemane, you will see scattered throughout the Gospels, places where the two sides of Jesus seem to be at war with each other. You know what that feels like on Fast Sunday, where the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Well, there are passages in the New Testament where you can see the father side of Jesus and the son side of Jesus at odds. I mean, you see it clearly in Gethsemane. Let this cup pass from me. That's the son side speaking. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. That's the Father's side answering back. And when Jesus falls on his face in Gethsemane and is sore amazed, when he says, Father, what shall I say? Let this cup pass from me? But for this purpose came I into the world. There again you see him torn between his divine mission and the mortal pain he would suffer in order to accomplish it. I wish we knew more about what Jesus felt. I wish we could hear the inner dialogue as he was wrestling with himself. And the book of Job, I think, gives us a chance to lean in and eavesdrop in incredibly sacred space. Because as I read Job as a type of Jesus, and not his complaint, not that kind of, oh, that, not that kind of wrestling, but the kinds of things he says as an innocent victim, I do see glimpses of what the mortal side of Jesus must have been feeling as he approached the garden and the cross. That is one powerful place to see it. And I would encourage you in your study of the book of Job, keep an eye out for it. And absent any kind of angry oppositionality, hear in the words of Job the feelings of Jesus. You will come away with a deeper appreciation for what Jesus did because he never succumbed to the kind of complaint of Job but what he was feeling and wrestling with. Son of Mary versus Son of God. It's incredible that he was able to go through with what he was sent to earth to accomplish. It's amazing. In verse 12, you'll see more of it. I was at ease, but he hath broken me asunder. He hath also taken me by my neck and shaken me to pieces and set me up for his mark. I've become the target of every sin, every sorrow. And that's exactly what Jesus was. His archers compass me round about. We saw earlier the arrows of the Almighty. It's happening again. These fiery darts coming at him from every direction. Can you picture him in Gethsemane on Calvary under such circumstances? He cleaveth my reins asunder. That's his bowels. It's this, this broken heart that he's experiencing. He doth not spare, nor could the Father spare the Son. 
He poureth out my gall upon the ground. There's the bitter cup that could not be taken from him. He breaketh me with breach upon breach. He runneth upon me like a giant. Oh, the Son of God was crushed under the weight of the Father's plan. And I can almost hear Job's words in the voice of Jesus. In verse 15, I have sewed sackcloth upon my skin. I thought sackcloth was supposed to be worn over your skin. So you can take it off when your mourning is over. Well, this is a permanent state of mourning. Sew it to your own skin. I defiled my horn in the dust. Other translations, I buried my brow in the dust, or I laid my strength in the dust. My face is foul with weeping. And on my eyelids is the shadow of death. A foul face with weeping. We call that an ugly cry. Isaiah described it as his visage was so marred more than any man. And then Job goes on. Not for any injustice in mine hands. Also my prayer is pure. This is innocent suffering. Which is exactly what Jesus personifies he is the God of every innocent victim because he was no, no one more innocent and no one more victimized than he. Job, <laughs> I remember once my sweet little son suffering because of his own mental illness and complaining once as a little boy to me, my life is harder than anyone who's ever lived. And I said to him, I should have mourned with him. Instead, I tried to comfort. And I said to him, you know, Jesus had it worse. Uh, when he said to Joseph Smith, the Son of Man hath descended below all things. Art thou greater than he? And so Joseph Smith probably had it worse than you. And, and Job had it worse than you, because that's another one that Jesus calls upon to reassure Job. Excuse me, reassure Joseph. You're not yet as Job. So even beyond Christ... Joseph Smith and Job probably had it worse than you, son. And it was so funny. I tried to keep a straight face because he was in anguish. But he said to me, that's exactly what mom said. So, yes, my wife knows the scriptures well also. But then he said, fine, then I'm number three. <laughs> that's when I kept trying to keep the straight face. I'm like, okay, then hold on to that bronze medal. The third hardest life that's ever been lived. Oh, there's probably a few others that rank higher. But what's interesting when we're suffering like that, and misery loves company, I suppose, looking for others who are in the fellowship of suffering, as Paul calls it, well, no one has suffered more than Jesus. And if we can turn to Job for insight into what Jesus endured, then perhaps we'll trust his atonement more than we do. And we will lay hold of the compassion that the condescension makes possible. Keep reading, though, and see Jesus in Job in a few more verses. Verse 18, O earth, cover not thou my blood, and let my cry have no place. Better translation for that. May my cry never be laid to rest. See what Job is asking for? I want the world to know of my suffering. But again, think of Jesus. And to cry repentance, to preach the atonement of Christ, to make sure his blood is not 
covered or forgotten to make sure his cries are never laid to rest. Also now, Job goes on, behold, my witness is in heaven and my record is on high. God knows the real me. My friends scorn me, but mine eye poureth out tears unto God. Oh, that one might plead for a man with God as a man pleadeth for his neighbor, which is exactly what Jesus does, our advocate with the Father. But if he pleads for us, who could possibly plead for him? No wonder he says that he trod the winepress alone and none were with him. No wonder he lamented, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? There's no one that could come. Job ends here, when a few years are come, then I shall go the way whence I shall not return. I will die. And that's the culmination of Christ's experience on the cross when he gave up the ghost. And yet he did return. And so would Job. If a man die, shall he live again? Yes. For just as Christ died and rose again, so shall we. Christ knows exactly what you're feeling, Job. He suffered to empathize with you. Chapter 17, Job then goes on. In verse 6, He hath made me also a byword of the people. And aforetime I was as a tabret, which is a small drum, something to be smitten. Other translations say it's a man in whose face people spit. Again, sound like Jesus? Mine eye also is dim by reason of sorrow, and all my members are as a shadow. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That was Jesus. In verse 14, I have said to corruption, in other words, to death, thou art my father, to the worm, thou art my mother and my sister. And where is now my hope? As for my hope, who shall see it? Where did Christ see hope? From the cross. Isaiah says that there he would see his seed. He would see those for whom he suffered and died. And that would give him hope. That would reassure him that his sacrifice was not in vain. In Job's case, what hope did he have for the future? Well, his hope would come through God, as it is with all of us. But that's not the kind of reassurance his friends are giving. In chapter 18, it's Bildad's turn to go for round number two. And it's no more hopeful than round number one. In verse 1, then answered Bildad the Shuhite and said, How long will it be ere you make an end of words? Mark, and afterwards we will speak. So are you done yet, Job? Get it all out. Just vent whatever you're going to say. Say it so that we can then respond and move forward. Of course, he doesn't wait for the mark. <laughs> he responds anyway and returns to the point he'd made earlier about inescapable suffering if you're wicked. There's no getting around. It's just the law of the harvest. In verse 5, he says, Yea, the light of the wicked shall be put out. And that looks like what's happening to you. The spark of his fire shall not shine. The light shall be dark in his tabernacle. His candle shall be put out with him. The steps of his strength shall be straightened. And his own counsel shall cast him down. For he is cast into a net by his own feet. And he walketh upon a snare. Reminds me of what Elder... Packer used to say that we are more often punished by our sins than for them. Oh, God doesn't even have to come down to punish you. You're already punishing yourself. You've cast your feet into a net of your own making. And so no wonder you're suffering. 
You brought it upon yourself. In verse 14, his confidence shall be rooted out of his tabernacle, and it shall bring him to the king of terrors. The king of terrors is death. And life is typically long enough and hard enough to truly humble us. As I've said to my son in his sufferings, life has to be hard enough to convince us that we couldn't make it through it on our own. And here, as Bildad is saying similar things to Job, your, his confidence is what needs to be rooted out. Job, you're, you're overconfident in yourself. To think that you can stand up to God, to think that you can justify yourself in his sight? No. So, no wonder your pride has to be pulled away from you. In verse 16, his roots shall be dried up beneath, and above shall his branch be cut off. Sounds like Malachi 4, the, the ultimate curse, that you will be cut off and have neither roots nor branches. No family tree, and that seems to be what's happened to Job. Bildad then continues describing the forlorn and forgotten state of the wicked and ends in verse 21, Surely such are the dwellings of the wicked, and I'm including you in the list, Job. This is the place of him that knoweth not God. There's another not-so-subtle accusation. Are you ignorant of God? Do you not know him? Or are you ignoring God? You don't want to know him? Well, that's completely inappropriate as far as Job is concerned. Absolutely false. How dare you make such an accusation? And chapter 9 is a powerful chapter where Job responds to Bildad and comes to his own defense once again. A powerful testimony here because he's been accused. You don't even know God. Oh, how dare you say that? In chapter 19, verse 1, Job answers and said, How long will you vex my soul and break me in pieces with words? You're no help at all, Bildad. Again, miserable counselors are ye all, physicians of no value. Verse 4, Be it indeed that I have erred, mine error remaineth with myself. Fine, if I'm wrong, then it's my problem. You can't even fix it anyway. Verse 7, Behold, I cry out of wrong, but I'm not heard. I cry aloud, but there is no judgment. He hath fenced up my way that I cannot pass, and he hath set darkness in my paths. He hath stripped me of my glory and taken the crown from my head. And that may have been true of Job, but it was even truer of Jesus. Stripped of glory, taken the crown, that is the condescension of Christ. Verse 12, his troops come together and raise up their way against me, and encamp round about my tabernacle. He hath put my brethren far from me, and mine acquaintance are verily estranged from me. My kinsfolk have failed. My familiar friends have forgotten me. And yeah, I'm looking at you three. Have you forgotten who I am, and how I've lived, and how I've treated you, friends? Again, this is Job and Jesus Christ, who was abandoned by his disciples, who was betrayed by Judas, who was denied by Peter. My familiar friends turning their backs. In verse 17, my breath, which can also mean my spirit, is strange to my wife. Here she is mentioned again. Though I entreated for the children's sake of mine own body. A better translation. I am loathsome to my own family. Yea, young children despised me. I arose, and they spake against me. All my inward friends abhorred me, and they whom I loved are turned against me. Rejected by his own, 
Again, another parallel between Job and Jesus. But when he says, my own wife, my own family, my spirit is strange to my wife. Well, hers was strange to you back in chapter 2. She was wrestling with her crisis of faith. Have you now caught up to her? Have you surpassed her to the point that now she looks at you and wonders, who is this? What has happened to my sweet, submissive husband? Your soul is strange to me. His family feeling the same. This would be brothers, sisters, perhaps parents if they're still alive because his children are no more. In verse 20, my bone cleaveth to my skin and to my flesh. I am escaped with the skin of my teeth. That's where that phrase comes from. Have pity upon me, have pity upon me, O ye my friends, for the hand of God hath touched me. Oh, please don't lecture me. Please don't falsely accuse me. Just pity. Just compassion. Can we go back to chapter 3 and where you were kind? I wish we could go back to chapter 1 when God was. But then he says in verse 23 and 4, and the way this chapter ends is absolutely magnificent. Oh, that my words were now written. And here they are. <laughs> oh, that they were printed in a book. And that book is open before us. That they were graven with an iron pen and lead in the rock forever. Now, whatever he's about to say, he obviously means what could possibly be so important that Job wants it written? In fact, he wants it in a book. In fact, he wants it engraved in stone so that it can never be rubbed out. This is what he wants. Verse 25, for the world to know, for I know that my Redeemer liveth and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. This is a personal, independent testimony. I, myself, not another. And what's his testimony of? That no matter how dark his days are, light will come. I don't get it. This is one of those moments... Well, we saw it with Sarah, the superhuman self-sacrifice with Hagar, and then, oh, pride from above being brought out by pride from below. We all have moments of sainthood and moments of sinnerhood. We all have times where we are less than what we should be, and other times where the Spirit straightens up within us and we say things that we hope the angels will record in permanent iron and lead. That's, that's the case for Job. This is about the midpoint of this magnificent book. And there, as chapter 19 comes to its end, such a powerful testimony of what? Of the resurrection? Earlier he was wondering, if a man die, shall he live again? Well, here is a powerful declaration of his faith that no matter what happens to me, even if worms consume my skin and my corpse decomposes in the earth, how oh, in my flesh shall I see God. Not just 
the ongoing existence of the human spirit, but a corporeal resurrection, a body that rises from the tomb. He had a testimony of that. And what else did he have a testimony of? His Redeemer, that he lives. Earlier he had said in another moment of, of clarity and power, though he kill me, yet I will trust in him. Well, here again, I know he lives. In the latter day, someday, far beyond my own, he shall stand upon the earth. What a prophecy. What a promise. But even before that great millennial day, even before the second coming of Christ to the world, I will have a first coming to him. And I know I'll see him. I'll know I'll see him beyond that. I'll, as I rise from the grave, my Redeemer lives. The next time we sing that beautiful hymn, I know that my Redeemer lives. I hope that we can sense Job singing alongside us. That despite all that he's been through, there's a part of me that wishes that the book ended right there. Or that our lesson could, could find its, its finale. Because there is yet a lot for, for Job to wrestle with. We're still not even done with round two of his, of his accusers. But pause here and just bask in the glow of Job's faith. That come what may, what I've been through in the past and what I yet have to go through in the future, today of all days I can testify that I know that my Redeemer liveth. As I said, we couldn't stop there. We have to go on. And in this second half of the book of Job, we will see more of his struggles, more of his wanting to call out God. He couldn't fully hold on to that moment of absolute conviction. And so in chapter 20, it's Zophar's turn to speak back up. And round two for him is meaner than his first round as well. In verse four, he says, Knowest thou not this of old, since man was placed upon earth, that the triumphing of the wicked is short, and the joy of the hypocrite but for a moment? Oh, the injustice of seeing the wicked prosper only lasts a little while. Which Job would have agreed with, right? That's just sin equals suffering like we've all been raised on. But the irony here is, is he suggesting that all of Job's prior life is an example of the wicked only triumphing for a moment? Job is struggling with the present, saying everything's out of whack. And here Zophar is saying, actually, I think the past was out of whack. The scales have finally come back into balance. And you, a wicked man, are suffering as you should have. I can't ex you can't explain what you're going through now. I can't explain why on earth you seemed so blessed before oh, justice came knocking. Oh, talk about flipping things around. In verse 12, Zophar says, Though wickedness be sweet in his mouth. And I love the metaphor. Zophar is a great speaker, a writer here. Uh, it's a, an amazing metaphor to think of wickedness being sweet in the mouth. But then what happens? So picture sin like some piece of candy. Now, it only poisons you if you swallow it. So how long can you go sucking on something without biting into it? That's a tough temptation to resist if you've ever tried. So keep going with Zophar's metaphor. 
Though wickedness be sweet in his mouth, though he hide it under his tongue. Do we do that sometimes? Nobody knows it's in my mouth. I've got this little sweet that I'm still sucking on. Though he spare it and forsake it not, but keep it still within his mouth. Say, hey, I'm not swallowing it. Well, true, but it's dissolving. It's slowly dripping down the back of your throat. What happens next? Yet his meat in his bowels is turned. Oh, now we're starting to feel some upset stomach. It is the gall of asps within him. I told you it was poisoning you already. He hath swallowed down riches. Oh, there's sweet candy indeed. But he shall vomit them up again. God shall cast them out of his belly. He shall suck the poison of asps. The viper's tongue shall slay him. Such a powerful metaphor here. Job, do you have any idea what you're doing? Sucking on the sweetness of sin. Oh, just a candy hidden under the tongue, but made of viper's venom. We saw poisonous arrows before. It's getting closer and closer to destroying you. You can't hide it forever. You can't permanently avoid the consequences of sin. And the pipers come calling, and it's time to pay him. In verse 19, because he hath oppressed and hath forsaken the poor. Now we're going to get to some very specific accusations. Riches was the concern earlier. And because of that, you've oppressed and forsaken the poor. Because he hath violently taken away an house which he builded not. So here he's suggesting that Job was only rich because he was greedy and selfish. Surely he shall not feel quietness in his belly. He shall not save of that which he desired. That's the vomiting up of your wealth, ill-gained. There shall none of his meat be left. There shall no man look for his goods. And sure enough, Job had lost his flocks and his herds, everything just like Zophar was saying. In the fullness of his sufficiency, he shall be in straits. Every hand of the wicked shall come upon him. Oh, what happened to you back in chapter 1? Attacked by enemies who took away all your possessions, slew all your servants. You're destitute. And in your case, Job, this seems to simply be a case of enforced empathy. The way you neglected the poor, of course God was going to make you feel like them because you wouldn't feel for them. This is the law of the harvest at its absolute best. He says in 27, the heaven shall reveal his iniquity. It's becoming more and more obvious the longer we look. The earth shall rise up against him. It already has. The increase of his house shall depart. Check that box. And his goods shall flow away in the day of his wrath. That's exactly what happened to you in chapter 1. Do you not see that you deserve it? He concludes, This is the portion of a wicked man from God, and the heritage appointed unto him by God. These are as clear a set of accusations as you could ask for. And there's more coming up. But Job knows they're wrong, so he pushes back in chapter 21. Verse 3, suffer me that I may speak, and after that I have spoken, mock on. I may not change the minds of you miserable counselors, but at least let me speak to vindicate myself. He says in verse 7, you want to talk about wickedness? Fine, but let's compare the wicked, especially the ones who prosper all around. Wherefore do the wicked live? become old, yea, are mighty in power, when I seem to have lost all of mine. Their seed is established in their sight with them, and their offspring before their eyes. 
while mine have all perished. Their houses are safe from fear. I was afraid even when I prospered, and neither is the rod of God upon them, while it's weighing heavily on me. In verse 13, they spend their days in wealth, while I've been reduced to poverty, and in a moment go down to the grave, while I can't get there soon enough. Therefore they say unto God, Depart from us, for we desire not the knowledge of thy ways. Me, on the other hand, I've been pleading for the exact opposite, to speak with God so he can explain himself to me, and I can explain myself to him. What is the Almighty, Job asks, that we should serve him? And what profit should we have if we pray unto him? At least, what's the point if the wicked are the ones who will prosper? If the ones who have no need of God are the ones who deny him, I, on the other hand, am not denying him. I know that my Redeemer liveth. I don't understand what I'm going through. But I'm not the wicked man that you are accusing me of being. In verse 22, he says, Shall any teach God knowledge, seeing he judgeth those that are high? Oh, again, Job, hold on to that truth. God's ways are higher than your ways. You see the schism of soul within him, saying so many beautiful things and so many not-so-beautiful things, wrestling to try to hold on to truths that he once held dear, but seem to be less applicable today than they did in his past. Job is going through it. And if you've ever been in similar circumstance, oh, hold on to your best moments. Now, Job 22, here's Eliphaz. The moment you come up and feel like, okay, I'm in a better, a better place, a better position, then here comes another miserable counselor to drag you back down. This is round three for Eliphaz. And he says in verse 2 of chapter 22, Can a man be profitable unto God, as he that is wise may be profitable unto himself? As King Benjamin would say, no matter how much we serve God, we're still unprofitable servants. And that's what Eliphaz is getting at. Is it any pleasure to the Almighty that thou art righteous? I mean, does that add anything to him? No. Is it gain to him that thou makest thy ways perfect? Will he reprove thee for fear of thee? Will he enter with thee into judgment? I mean, that's been Job's question all along. I want to go face God in a judgment day. Because I'll, I think I'll come off scot-free. This is innocent victimage. And he's right there. But Eliphaz doesn't think so. He says in verse 5, Is not thy wickedness great, and thine iniquities infinite? And he has some more specific accusations to give, just like his friend had. Verse 6, For thou hast taken a pledge from thy brother for naught, and stripped the naked of their clothing. Thou hast not given water to the weary to drink, and thou hast withholden bread from the hungry. So again, a repeat of that earlier accusation. You're guilty of sins of greed and avarice and lack of hospitality. You've turned a blind eye to the suffering of all those around you. And so no wonder you have to be awakened to that suffering by suffering yourself. In verse 9, thou hast sent widows away empty, and the arms of the fatherless have been broken. Therefore snares are round about thee, and sudden fear troubleth thee. 
Remember the most haunting example of enforced empathy warned about back in Exodus? That if you do anything to hurt a widow or an orphan, then I will kill you so your wife knows what it's like to be a widow and your children know what it's like to be fatherless. Well, Eliphaz here is reverse engineering that. It's looking like God is about to turn your wife into a widow. Well, it must be because you have somehow turned widows away and your wife's about to know what it feels like to be completely abandoned. So, what does Eliphaz do? He urges Job to repent. That's the only solution that exists for you. Verse 21, acquaint now thyself with him, with God, and be at peace. Obviously, you're estranged from him. You've forgotten God. But just come back to him. All will be well. Thereby good shall come unto thee. Receive, I pray thee, the law from his mouth, and lay up his words in thine heart. If thou return to the Almighty, thou shalt be built up. Thou shalt put away iniquity far from thy tabernacles. He adds in 26, For then shalt thou have thy delight in the Almighty, and shall lift up thy face unto God. Thank you, Eliphaz. That is such beautiful advice for the wicked. Repentance truly is the way. Come to know God. And you'll see a merciful Messiah, a loving Lord, and you'll be at peace as a result. He does want you to come home. Return to him and put away your iniquity and you'll delight in him. You'll lift up your, your face because you won't have to hang it in fear. The problem was, that's all the kind of advice Job would have given to the wicked he knew. He just knew that he wasn't wicked. So where does that put him? It puts him pushing back once again. Chapter 23, he responds to Eliphaz's false accusations and says in verse 3, Oh, that I knew where I might find him. You said, go get acquainted with him. I'd love to. You said to return to the Almighty. That's what I'm begging for. That I might come even to his seat. And what specific seat would that be? The judgment seat. I would order my cause before him. Lay out all my attorney's notes, all of my evidence. I would fill my mouth with arguments. See, now we're going back to Job demanding his day in court. And I, yes, will be my own defense attorney. I have all the proof I think I need. Uh, evidence. I mean, you bagged your evidence. Well, let me bag my own. And I'll bring enough to counteract whatever you dredged up from a distant past. I am innocent here. In verse 6, Job adds, Will he plead against me with his great power? There's more courtroom language. No, but he would put strength in me. In other words, he would give me a fair hearing. He would take note of me. There the righteous might dispute with him. So should I be delivered forever from my judge. Yet again, more court language. Job is confident that the judge would rule in his favor because he's been righteous. All of, jo of Eliphaz's false accusations notwithstanding. Verse 10, but he knoweth the way that I take. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. My foot hath held his steps. I love that phrase. There's been no backsliding on my part. I've been following in the Lord's footsteps every step of the way. Maybe it's a good thing that you put that print in my heel because you'll know that I've been following you. My foot hath held his steps. His way have I kept and not declined. 
Neither have I gone back from the commandment of his lips. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. I mean, if Job is practicing his self-defense there, it's a pretty convincing one. I have been following God without equivocation. I have been doing all that he asks of me. I hunger and thirst after righteousness more than I do after my necessary food. Oh, if man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth forth from the mouth of God, that's how I've been living my life. And so I trust that as, if I can simply show God that, then I'll come forth as gold. If he will try me, if he'll let me have my day in court. Can you imagine being so sure of your own worthiness that you can rely on God's justice instead of God's mercy to make it? I've mentioned it before, but that was the advice that President or young elder Gordon B. Hinckley gave to a very young Elaine S. Dalton as she got married and said to her at the sealing ceremony, live your lives in such a way that you can count on being blessed through God's justice and not simply through his mercy. That's amazing to me. I think most of my blessings probably come because of God's mercy. Uh, to be able to rely on our own worthiness, not for salvation, but to be able to go to God and know that there's nothing we've done that would keep him from blessing us. And he pours out those blessings in abundance. Job goes on in verse 13, but he, God that is, is in one mind and who can turn him? I don't know if I'll be able to change his mind if it's dead set against me. What his soul desireth, even that he doeth. For he performeth a thing that is appointed for me, and many such things are with him. Therefore am I troubled at his presence. When I consider, I am afraid of him. Here again we see a bit of waffling on Job's part. On the one hand, so confident in his righteousness and in the righteousness of God, that once he sees it all and we clarify whatever oh, confusion we were both under, then all will be well. But then there's this other side. If he's dead set against me for whatever reason, if I've misunderstood what God is like, uh, then I'm afraid of him. I, I don't know what to do from here. To think of God as an undomesticated deity, as an untamed Lord. And I don't know what he's doing. He seemed so predictable in my early days. And everything made such perfect sense. I obey and I'm blessed. That's it. I see others not obeying and they're cursed. Super simple. The law of the harvest was 100%. And now life is so confusing. It makes me worried. I'm confused, he said earlier. I'm afraid, he says now. He keeps speaking in chapter 24, admitting that, yeah, some people are wicked. And they do exactly what Eliphaz has accused me of. But I haven't done it. In verse 3, he says, They drive away the ass of the fatherless. They take the widow's ox for a pledge. They turn the needy out of the way. The poor of the earth hide themselves together. In 7, he adds, They cause the naked to lodge without clothing, that they have no covering in the cold. And 10, they cause him to go naked without clothing, and they take away the sheaf from the hungry. But that's the they. 
It's not the me. I haven't been guilty of those things. In verse 13, they are of those that rebel against the light. They know not the way thereof, nor abide in the paths thereof. But that isn't me. I hold to the light. I try to live my life by it. I know the way and I stay on the path. I always have. I just don't understand why this path took such a sharp turn toward injustice, unfair suffering. Well, we're still not ready to let Job off the hook because Bildad speaks up with round three in chapter 25. I'll just give you a single verse to summarize his argument. Verse four, he says, how then can man be justified with God? How can he be clean that is born of a woman? There it is again, same argument we've seen repeatedly. Humanity is simply fallen. There's no getting around it, at least not absent the atonement of Christ. With this, we go back to that high counselor's comment. Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, who says you're good people? And I guess in some ways that solves the issue of theodicy for, for anyone past the years of accountability, at least. Do I deserve to be punished? Well, yes, I do. But is, is that all that we're left with? It's actually interesting to realize this idea of how then can man be justified with God? Bildad's original question. There's some theology we need to wrestle with. And he's not going to provide the answer. And, and neither is Job, to be honest. Because as far as they're concerned, how can we be justified with God? Perfect obedience. That's it. Now, thankfully, they did bring up repentance before, and Job understands that part as well. He just doesn't think it applies to him in this circumstance. What's interesting about life's difficulties is they prove to us just how insufficient we are on our own. Life's difficulties point us back to a Savior as, because we finally know we need saving from things. And, and again, that's what introduces us to that higher elevation of atonement. Back in Eden, at the creation stage, I didn't know I needed a Savior. And it wasn't until I fell and lost the altitude that I previously had enjoyed that I realized, oh, I do need some help. I'm in a pit I can't get out of. And Christ lifts me out of that pit. But even if that's just justification, to get me back to the level of Eden, as I've taught before, that's when the Lord says to us, do you want to see what those ropes are really for? They're for mountain climbing, not just for search and rescue. The yes, they go down to pull people out of the pit, but they also go up so that we can ascend the heights to the atonement. And that's really what this is all about. We're going from creation through fall up to atonement. We're going from innocent through guilt all the way up to holiness, which surpasses mere innocence infinitely. You just had to get to a point where you knew you couldn't make it on your own. And that's part of the reason for even innocent suffering. I had a conversation with one person that was wrestling with some hard things. And I said to, I asked her pretty bluntly, when are you going to love Christ? And very offended, she said, how dare you? I do love Christ. And I said, you're right. You love Christ as your teacher as your example, because through most of life you've been really good at 
following his teachings and keeping his example intact. But now that you need him as a savior, that's my question. When are you going to love him like that? Now that you know you're in need of saving. Sadly, we too often remain content with our innocence, even though we're not that innocent, without realizing just how much we're in need of saving grace. How can man be justified with God only through a Savior? And Job, you need one, whether you know it or not. Chapter 26, Job's response to Bildad, will be short on this one too. He again turns to the creation to show Bildad the nature of God, the power of God. In verse 12, he divideth the sea with his power. By his understanding, he smiteth through the proud. Notice the focus on his power and his understanding. There's his omnipotence, power, and his omniscience, understanding. Hold on to those two attributes throughout the rest of the book. By his spirit, he hath garnished the heavens. His hand hath formed the crooked serpent. There's Leviathan, the great sea monster, symbol of chaos. Lo, these are parts of his ways, but how little a portion is heard of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? I think Job is actually suggesting something interesting there because he turns to the creation, as he's done before, and has, as God will do later on, to show what God is like. But then he admits at the end how little a portion is heard of him. It suggests that nature is incredible at giving evidence of the existence of God, but it's inadequate to teach us all we need to know about God's character. After all, yes, the, the cosmos seems to be a well-oiled machine, so it does suggest God's omniscience and omnipotence, but is he omnipotent good or omnipotent bad? Is he omniscient oh, kind or omniscient angry? After all, nature is pretty violent. That's Tennyson's nature, red in tooth and claw. And are we down to survival of the fittest? Is that all it works? Are we down to a dog-eat-dog kind of world? You see, when it, he admits that how little a portion we can see in creation, we see some important things, but to see the rest, it has to be divine self-disclosure, like we saw earlier. It has to be God revealing his nature that I'm more than power and wisdom, I'm also love. And if God can confirm that to us, oh, then we know the God that we need to come unto. And we know the God that we can come unto. He wants us home. Job's response continues in chapter 27. He says in verse 2, As God liveth, who hath taken away my judgment, and the Almighty, who hath vexed my soul, all the while my breath is in me, and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils. My lips shall not speak wickedness, nor my tongue utter deceit. No matter what happens to me, I will not curse God and die. I, in fact, the next, next verse, verse 5, he says, God forbid that I should justify you. You asked about being justified with God. I don't want to be justified with you. Because being justified with you would be admitting that you're right about all my iniquity. And you're not. He says, till I die, I will not remove my integrity from me. My righteousness I hold fast. I will not let it go. My heart shall not reproach me so long as I live. 
This goes back to Job's incredible integrity. Fear God, eschew evil. Perfect, upright in his generation. This is a, he's as good as they come as far as justice is concerned. As far as innocence. He, wants, he, he nailed life in Eden. Uh, no fall as far as I'm concerned. Well, life will bring you into a fall, even if your own sin doesn't. And wrestling with all of that, where do I go from here? I love the way he says it to these false accusers. I'm not going to prove you right. Because I know of some people who feel like I'm being punished. Life is punishment. And so I might as well do something wrong so at least I deserve the punishment. Because I don't know if wickedness never was happiness. Some wicked seem to be prospering. Some wicked people seem to be happy. And so if I'm going to be treated like the wicked, I might as well live up to it. And they end up justifying their accusers. And that's tragic. Job, on the other hand, would not settle for some kind of eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die sort of mentality. No, even if I'm punished like the wicked or with the wicked, I will not join them in their wickedness. I don't understand innocent suffering, but I will not remove my innocence, no matter how much suffering it entails. In verse 8, for what is the hope of the hypocrite? though he hath gained when God taketh away his soul. That's amazingly similar to what Jesus himself would say in Matthew. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? This is another good moment for Job. I will hold fast to my integrity no matter what happens. The rest of the chapter, he reiterates what he said before. Wickedness never was happiness. It's actually interesting because the rest of chapter 27, scholars disagree on where does it come from because it seems a little bit out of place. Some have suggested that, that we've missed something and actually those are Zophar's words about wickedness never being happiness. It's another kind of oh, punch below the belt that it's a matter of accusing or ins making insinuations against Job that, well, but bro, I know you say that, Job. You're going to hold fast to your integrity, but here you are suffering, which is evidence that you haven't held fast. Because sin equals suffering, they're synonymous. It would actually make sense if those were Zophar's words. They're close to what he said earlier, and we're missing round three for Zophar. This is the only time when things aren't perfectly parallel as far as the, the narrative organization of the book of Job is concerned. So I'm, I'm content to let scholars suggest that, and I think I'll go along with them, uh, that it may have been Zophar who, who interjects at the end of Job 27. Either way, like I've said before, they share the same mentality. Sin equals suffering. Just Zophar is thinking, I see the sin, you must be, uh, I see the suffering, you must be sinning, and Job reverse, there is no sin, so there should be no suffering. Which is what sets up the next few chapters, which is Job's final self-defense. We've seen him do that each time he rebuts one of his accusers. But now we see his, his real concluding arguments, and they're, they're amazing. It starts in chapter 28, and it goes for several chapters. Uh, and he teaches some profound truths. 28, his focus is on wisdom. Because that's what, one of the things he's been wrestling with, God's omnipotence and his omniscience. So where is the wisdom in go of, of God in all of this? He starts in this chapter by describing the deepest searches imaginable. 
Think of mining for precious metals or gemstones. Think of places where not even the animals of the earth have, have explored. He says in verse 12, but where shall wisdom be found? You want to talk about a deep search. Where is the place of understanding? Man knoweth not the price thereof, neither is it found in the land of the living. The depth saith, it's not in me. The sea saith, it's not with me. It cannot be gotten for gold, neither shall silver be weighed for the price thereof. But if wisdom is so hard to find, then how will we ever attain it? And again, that seems to be the suggestion that it will only come as God chooses to give it to us. It will only come through divine self-disclosure, divine revelation. But to come to know God in that way, it goes back to his other question. Not just where shall wisdom be found, it'll be found in God, but his other question, or his other point, man knoweth not the price thereof. What price do we have to pay to acquire it? And it's the price of coming to know God. It's relationship with him. It's coming to understand him for who he is. And that, it's amazing how our trials and our sufferings and our sorrows introduce us to the man of sorrows himself. How they turn us to God and give us a glimpse into his character in ways that ease doesn't do it. There's not, we haven't paid the price yet to attain that kind of wisdom. In verse 20, he adds, Whence then cometh wisdom? And where is the place of understanding? He just repeated verse 12 again there. And then he says, Seeing it is hid from the eyes of all living, and kept close from the fowls of the air, no matter how high they fly, they can't even find it. Verse 23, God understandeth the way thereof, and he knoweth the place thereof. For he looketh to the ends of the earth, and seeth under the whole heaven. Once again, true wisdom, only found in God. Verse 26, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, there's more elements of nature he's calling upon, then doth he see it. He sees wisdom, that is. He declares it. He prepared it. Yea, searched it out. And unto man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. That is one of the key passages in this whole book. We'll see it emphasized in the book of Ecclesiastes in a couple of weeks. But to see that God knows all wisdom and the portion of it that he shares with us is so simple. Just trust God and walk in his ways. He's the possessor of it all. He sees it, declares it, prepared it, searches it. That's the infinite. And as we talked about in terms of the proving the contrary of God, that the infinite and the intimate come together, that Moses is blown away by the, the infinite side of God to the point that he thinks that man is nothing, which thing he never had supposed. But in the same breath, he's introduced to the intimate side of God, that I'm his son, created after the image of his only begotten. Man is everything, which thing I also had never supposed. He's feeling both extremes in beautiful ways. I think in a similar vein, Job, God is the source of all wisdom. He has it all, more than I can ever attain to. Double is what we saw earlier. Well, can we double the double? Can we make this infinite? And that is the infinite side of God. But the intimate is when he condescends simply to tell us 
you want real wisdom, then just the fear of God. It's reverence, it's respect, it's worship, and it's righteousness. Depart from evil. That's how you'll come to understanding. If you can live that way, by living worthily and righteously, and by repenting of the times that you don't, that intimate understanding through the atonement of, of Christ will help you know God enough to get back to Him. And then, believe me, there'll be a Q&A session with God like you can't believe, where all things will be made known to, you, known to you, and you can understand all of God's wisdom. We just don't have the brain capacity for it yet. So what, what little truths will fit into our little minds? Obedience, worship, repentance, righteousness. Just live the simple truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's enough for each of us. Job continues in chapter 29, another masterpiece of a chapter. He's reflecting upon his own happy past in this chapter. In verse 2, he says, Oh, that I were as in months past, as in the days when God preserved me, when his candle shined upon my head, and when by his light I walked through darkness. Yes, there's some nostalgia for better, easier days. I'm sure we've all felt that during our dark ones, and I think that's okay. In verse 5, he says, When the Almighty was yet with me, when my children were about me. Oh, that's when the nostalgia can even be so strong that it hurts. Especially if you're in faith crisis or have loved ones who are. Do you miss times when it was so much easier to feel close to God? That's something that Job misses here. And when his children were about him, yes, there's the... the the sense of loss he feels because of their physical death. But every parent who feels like they've lost a child spiritually feels the same nostalgia. Oh, to have them little again. Where they wanted to be a part of family home evening. When they sang the primary songs and we read scripture together and, and they were easy to be entreated. When they had faith and hope and charity and childlike love for a God that they knew would bless them. Oh, beware that nostalgia not suck all the joy out of life, but hold on to enough of it that it hopefully can bring back some of the joy from our past. He leans into more nostalgia in verse 11. When the ear heard me, then it blessed me. When the eye saw me, it gave witness to me. There were times earlier in life when my influence was accepted to people. I, I could make a difference in other people's lives. And that to me is like the sense of loss that people often feel when they come home from a mission and miss the kind of influence they had when they wore the tag. It's the pain that comes in being released from a calling where you were blessing people and you felt the difference that you were making. For some, it's the challenges of growing old and being in a, in a place in life where your health just doesn't allow you to serve in the way you once did and missing those kinds of opportunities to be a blessing. In verse 12, he adds, Because I delivered the poor that cried and the fatherless and him that had none to help him, the blessing of him that was ready to perish came upon me and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. Now, this clarifies the earlier nostalgia. It wasn't just about feeling important 
and people looked up to me and I gave people advice and they took it. I, I, I feel that sometimes when a teacher retires, when that day comes for me, will it be a hard thing when I no longer have classes to teach and no one's listening to me anymore? Uh, is that all it was? Was I feeling important? In Job's case, no. And hopefully in our case, that's not, not it either. Because as he says in the next, no, it wasn't about being important. It was about being useful. It was about being a simple instrument in the hands of God. And the poor looked to me, the fatherless, the widow. All those accusations you just leveled, nothing could be further from the truth. Go ask them. And I never neglected a widow. Instead, I made her heart rejoice. And I miss that. I actually wonder if that might be a better tool to help rescue the lost than trying to force testimony back on them. Instead, help them lean into the nostalgia of greater usefulness in blessing other people's lives. I wonder if that might be something of just helping people remember colonies they served in or their mission or just times more used would I be well, think about being able to admit, wow, more is used what had I been. And I haven't felt very used lately. And I could make a difference. Even if it's not in this church, go be a blessing to people. Because that will get you back into touch with God and the Spirit. And then God can work the miracles that will bring you back into the fold. I think there's power there. Job then adds in verse 14, I put on righteousness. And it clothed me. Talk about a perfect fit. Forget the, the sackcloth that's been stitched to my skin. No, righteousness clothed me beautifully. My judgment was as a robe and a diadem. There's the robes of righteousness. There's the crown of glory. I was eyes to the blind and feet was I to the lame. I was a father to the poor and the cause which I knew not, I searched out. That's amazing. It's not just, oh, I saw a need and I met it. No, I searched for needs where I couldn't find any. Uh, who, who's out there that could benefit from my help? I'm going to search for them and make a difference. Not only that, but I break the jaws of the wicked and plucked the spoil out of his teeth. Sounds like the young shepherd David with the lion and the bear. Any lost lamb that's suffering or struggling, oh, I will rescue them. I will redeem them. Now I'm begging for a Redeemer of my own. I know that my Redeemer liveth. In the latter days I'll see him, but is there any chance and hope of seeing him before then? May he come to my rescue. That's what he cries out for in chapter 30. Job continues. He describes again the respect from others he'd enjoyed earlier in life. But all that's gone now. He says in verse 9, Now I am their song. And it's not a pleasant one. Yea, I am their byword. They abhor me. They flee far from me. They spare not to spit in my face. Which again ties him back into Jesus. To lose the esteem of those who once looked up to you. I feel so bad for the elderly that feel forgotten or forsaken. As if their lives are irrelevant. When they have so much meaning to give. Wisdom to offer to the rising generation. Job is feeling that and struggling with it. He repeats those cries about social alienation, about physical affliction, about divine abandonment, all these areas of life that have been taken from him. 
And then he says of God in verse 20, I cry unto thee, and thou dost not hear me. I stand up, and thou regardest me not. Thou art become cruel to me. With thy strong hand thou opposest thyself against me. Have you ever felt ignored, abandoned, even opposed, or even attacked by God? This is about as close as Job will get to, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But he's feeling it. And in verse 25, he wonders why. Did not I weep for him that was in trouble? Was not my soul grieved for the poor? When I looked for good, then evil came upon me. And when I waited for light, there came darkness. If we still trust in the law of the harvest at all, then why have you forsaken me when I did not forsake others? I had compassion upon people who were suffering. Wilt thou please have compassion upon me? Chapter 31 then proceeds with Job's final argument. This is the closing argument of the defense. And then he's going to rest his case. It's a powerful chapter. I mean, it ends with, the words of Job are ended. And so the case closed once this chapter is finished. But notice what he says in it. Verse 1, I made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? Whatever accusations you've leveled against me as far as neglect of the poor are concerned, here's one in case you were wondering about my sense of morality, my personal purity. The way he says it is so powerful. It goes beyond merely, oh, I avoided adultery. I kept the seventh commandment. No, remember his concern was even things that might be happening in the heart of people. Well, he didn't allow any of that to enter into his heart because he wouldn't even allow it to enter into his eye. I love his phrase. I made a covenant with my eye. You think I'm going to look on a maid? I mean, we talk about the wandering eye, but for Job, it's like, no, 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 no. remember, we made a pro you and me. Picture him staring himself in the mirror, eye to eye, saying, you and I covenanted, and you promised you would obey. You promised that you would follow the Spirit instead of the lust of the flesh. And so, no, I have, I'm not guilty of that, If in case you're wondering. In verse 4, doth not he, as in God, see my ways? And count all my steps. He's got the mark on my heel if he needs it. If I have walked with vanity, or if my foot hath hasted to deceit, then let me be weighed in an even balance, that God may know mine integrity. I have not given in to greed or vanity. I haven't given in to lust or immorality. I haven't given in to dishonesty or pride. I just need an even balance. I don't know how it got out of whack. I don't know who's been leaning on one side to make it feel like I'm, that God is justified in heaping such affliction upon me. More than the sands of the sea, as he said before. I'm not guilty of that. I just need an even scale. In verse 13, if I did despise the cause of my manservant or my maidservant when they contended with me, what then shall I do when God riseth up? Then he would be justified. When he visiteth, what shall I answer him? Did not he that made me in the womb make him 
And did not one fashion us in the womb? I love the end there. We're all the same. No wonder he found it so easy to care for the poor and the needy. He didn't see himself as above them. No wonder he honored his manservants and maidservants because he wasn't, there was no pride from above on his part. If there had been, then they would have been justified with pride from below, but there wasn't any of that either. So if I treated people so well, even people that ostensibly were beneath me, though I didn't see them in that, then how does God view me? And he, can he not deliver me from my afflictions? Verse 16, if I have withheld the poor from their desire or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail or have eaten my morsel myself alone and the fatherless hath not eaten thereof. It's amazing how often hospitality and care for the poor and needy is reiterated here. And Job is not guilty of neglecting any of them. I've always looked for ways to bless others. God, wilt thou please begin blessing me again? In verse 19, if I have seen any perish for want of clothing, or any poor without covering, if his loins have not blessed me, and if he were not warmed with the fleece of my sheep, at least when I had them before they were all destroyed by fire from heaven, if I have lifted up my hand against the fatherless when I saw my help in the gate, then let mine arm fall from my shoulder blade, and mine arm be broken from the bone. I would never lift my arm against someone. In fact, I always lifted my arm to help them. And if that wasn't the case, then what was the use of my arms to begin with? They can fall from the bone for all I care. I had one purpose in having them. God had one purpose in giving them to me. And it was for me to be His hands. And I only lifted people. May God then lift me with His almighty hands. In verse 24, if I have made gold my hope, or have said to the fine gold, thou art my confidence, if I rejoiced because my wealth was great, and surely it had been, and because mine hand had gotten much, then this also were an iniquity to be punished by the judge, for I should have denied the God that is above. I did not place my trust in riches. I placed it in God. So please come through for me. Verse 29, if I rejoiced at the destruction of him that hated me, or lifted up myself when evil found him, neither have I suffered my mouth to sin by wishing a curse to his soul. I did not hate my enemy. I didn't seek to avenge myself of anyone that was against me. I have been innocent in all of this. In verse 33, if I covered my transgressions as Adam, now other translations say, as some men do, since Adam can be a generic term. But I do like how King James translators put it. Adam did try to hide his transgression. He did try to cover himself with the fig leaves, but not Job. By hiding mine iniquity in my bosom, I wasn't guilty of that. I, any sins I was aware of, I fully admitted, confessed, forsook, repented of. I just don't have anything right now on the list. In verse 35, Oh, that one would hear me. Behold, my desire is that the Almighty would answer me, and that mine adversary had written a book. I'll even allow the prosecuting attorney to lay out whatever evidence they want. Take mine enemies, people evil disposed against me. We've listened to three rounds from three of them already. But to take that nine square of false accusations, drum up whatever things you want to say against me. 
I'll let them write that book as long as the Almighty is there to, to read the one that's written within me. If he will simply... I'm not even asking him to come to my defense right now. I'm just asking him to come to the courtroom. I'll defend myself. That's what I did this entire chapter. And the chapters preceding it. This, this is an, the apex, the crescendo, the finale of, of Job's self-presentation. And if I were the judge and weighed the evidence in the balance, as long as the balance were even, Job would come off scot-free. He did not deserve what he was going through. We've known that from chapter 1 and 2 when Satan first showed up. And then by the end of the chapter, as I said, verse 40, the words of Job are ended. In legal terms, he could say, and I rest my case. Well, the story doesn't end there, though. And what we see in the last 10 or 11 chapters of Job, how it takes this entire story to an, an entirely new level. Because we meet a new character. If you want to change the plot, then introduce a new character. And the one that we have here is named Elihu. In chapter 32, he begins speaking. In verse 1, these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. I mean, they can all agree on that point, at least. They thought he was wrong for being right in his own eyes. And he thought he was right for being right in his own eyes. And so what's the point of belaboring things in this earthly tribunal? We'll have to wait until God does come to the bench. And here's the case. But we do have one more person speaking up there in the courtroom, at least the earthly version. Verse 2, Then was kindled the wrath of Elihu, the son of Barachel the Buzite, of the kindred of Ram. Elihu means, my God is he, or he is my God. And he's going to take the, the place. In some ways, this is the dress rehearsal for final judgment. That's what you want, right? You want to go face God and defend yourself? Well, let me take his place. And since my God is he, I'll let you speak to me about your so-called innocence. Against Job was his wrath kindled, this verse says, because he justified himself rather than God. But that's not the only person he was mad at. Against his three friends was his wrath kindled as well because they had found no answer and yet had condemned Job. You see, as far as Elihu was concerned, everybody's wrong. Job, you're wrong because you think your suffering has something to do with sin. It doesn't. Suffering is just part of the mortal condition. Deal with it. And your friends, oh, they're wrong because they're accusing you of sins that you're not guilty of. But either way, you're, you're too focused on the suffering. And that's not the question we should be asking. We should be asking what... Well, let's put it this way. The question isn't about suffering. It's about the mortal condition. And what is it about the divine condition that helps put into perspective the mortal condition? What is it about the nature of God that he makes the nature of mortality the way that it is? Uh, and in what way does what we suffer on earth Prepare us for the life that only God can live. What, what is it about that? Well, Elihu had been holding his tongue this whole time. I don't know when he showed up or if he'd been there the whole time or if he's a... I, I, we don't know enough about him. But he can't hold his tongue any longer. And so he says in verse 6, I'm young and ye are very old. 
Wherefore, I was afraid and durst not show you mine opinion. That sadly happens all too often still. You young people need to get over that and realize that you have incredible things to say and that the older generation needs your insight. So speak up, Elihu. He goes on, I said, days should speak and multitude of years should teach wisdom. That's why I was deferring this whole time. 31 chapters worth. But there is a spirit in man, even a young man. And the inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. You see, the spirit within us is independent of the age of the body that it's in. That spirit connects with the Spirit of God, and through it we can have wisdom beyond our years, which is exactly what Elihu is trying to offer Job. In verse 17, he says, I will answer also my part. I also will show mine opinion, for I am full of matter. The spirit within me constraineth me. Behold, my belly is as wine which hath no vent. It's ready to burst like new bottles. I love this about Elihu. I, I can't keep it in anymore. It's like with Jeremiah, it's fire in my bones. I'm weary with forbearing. I'm biting my lips so hard it's starting to bleed. That's actually a good sign that the, it may be the spirit within you that is trying to give you utterance. You ever felt that way on Fast and Testimony meeting? You're so full of matter. The spirit within you is just seeking a way to vent. And that's what Elihu is about to do. He does it in chapter 33. He turns to Job and he says in verse 3 and 4, My words shall be of the uprightness of my heart. So please know that I'm speaking sincerely. I'm speaking out of a place of integrity. And my lips shall utter knowledge clearly. So I'm trying to be as clear and straightforward as I possibly can be. The Spirit of God hath made me, and the breath of the Almighty hath given me life. So please listen. This message is God's. It's not mine. And what would he have me say? Verse 5. If thou canst answer me, set thy words in order before me. This is the court case, and you're, you're welcome to lay out the evidence. Stand up, he says. Behold, I am according to thy wish in God's stead, though I also am formed out of the clay. That's why I said earlier, this is your dress rehearsal, Job. And you get to practice on a mere mortal. Oh, that, hopefully that will make it easier for you to, to speak boldly. Because when you have to face God, I'm not sure how bold you'll be. We're all just clay after all. Now let me set the stage and get you up to speed. I'll even I'll re-summarize your closing arguments. In verse 9 through 11, I am clean without transgression. I know that's what you've been saying for chapter after chapter. I am innocent, or so you proclaim. Neither is there iniquity in me. Behold, he findeth occasions against me. He counteth me for his enemy. He putteth my feet in the stocks. He marked all my paths. Uh, how did I do, Job? Is that about what you've been trying to say for the last 30 chapters or so? Innocent of wrongdoing, which is why you are calling God to court to sue him for malpractice. Or at least to demand, since he has some explaining to do. In verse 12, Behold, in this thou art not just. I will answer thee, that God is greater than man. Why dost thou strive against him? For he giveth not account of any of his matters. That's a key statement too. Job 33 verse 12. God knows what he's doing, and he isn't accountable to you to explain himself, Job. 
Hold on to that. God is greater than man, and he giveth not account of any of his matters. Sorry to break it to you. I, yeah, you probably had a great case to make, but <laughs> you can't demand God that God come to court. He, he, it reversed that, and eventually he demands that we do. In verse 27, he looketh upon me, and if any say, I have sinned and perverted that which was right, and it profited me not. Now that sounds pretty good. That's true repentance. I have sinned. There's confess. I've perverted that which was right. There's an acknowledgement that I was wrong, but the law was correct. And it profited me not. So there's a sense of forsaking it. I, why would I go back? It did me no good. I've seen the error of my ways. I've changed my perspective. Now that's good repentance. And so what's the result? He will deliver his soul from going into the pit, and his life shall see the light. Lo, all these things worketh God oftentimes with man, to bring back his soul from the pit, to be enlightened with the light of the living. It's a great passage about repentance and forgiveness. Because it's describing, if you'll do your part and repent of your sins, forgiveness always comes. That's the way he's always done it. it he worketh oftentimes that way with man. In fact, the only reason he cries repentance is to bring you back. This idea of bringing back his soul from the pit to enlighten you with light. Your sins have darkened things. And like I said before, guilt is to the conscience as pain is to the body. And it's meant to wake us up so we can turn to God. So don't just learn from your mistake, Job. Learn about your master. Come unto him and realize that he's working on you for important purposes. Elihu keeps going in chapter 34. This time he's testifying of God's justice. In verse 2 he says, Hear my words, O ye wise men, and give ear unto me, ye that have knowledge. For the ear trieth words as the mouth tasteth meat. Let us choose to us judgment. Let us know among ourselves what is good. Sounds similar to what Job had said earlier, that I can taste, I would be able to taste my own guilt. I would be able to discern it if I was wrong. And here Elihu is trying to say the same about, well, let's try our words here. And how do they taste? Sounds like Alma 32, where the word of God, once you experiment upon it, becomes delicious to you. Sounds like Joseph Smith, where he said, oh, this is good doctrine. It tastes good. We can sense it as far as discernment is concerned. So verse 10, taste this. Therefore hearken unto me, ye men of understanding. Far be it from God that he should do wickedness, and from the Almighty that he should commit iniquity. For the work of a man shall he render unto him, and cause every man to find according to his ways. Yea, surely God will not do wickedly, neither will the Almighty pervert judgment. Now that's another key passage. Elihu has quite a few of them. And the point he's trying to make here is, the, is establish the absolute bedrock truth that God doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't do wickedly. I know that these men have been accusing you, Job, of doing wickedly. And it, you say that they're wrong. Well, anytime you've been hinting that God has done wickedly, or at least unfairly, then you're wrong in that. And this is a, is a foundational premise that we need to base our court case on. That I may not know what God is doing, but it's not wrong of him to do it. 
Now, it's interesting, in, in logical reasoning, they speak about inductive reasoning and deductive reasoning. And I often get them mixed up. I have to keep looking up definitions to confirm it in my head. But inductive reasoning looks at specific examples and then tries to extrapolate a, a, an overarching principle. It can't be proven for sure because you haven't examined every imaginable instance. And so there might be an exception to that rule. But by and large, it's the way we come up with theories. Okay, we hypothesize based on what we see, and then we use inductive reasoning to come up with the general idea. Deductive reasoning works in the opposite direction. Deductive reasoning starts with the big picture. It starts with an absolutely true premise. At least it better be true or everything's going to fall apart. Okay, but with this truth that we know, that's our major premise, then we'll introduce some minor premise that will allow us to see in this more specific example we can reach a conclusion that we're absolutely positive of, okay? If that doesn't make sense, go look it up, <laughs> okay? In this, in this instance, here's the inductive versus the deductive reasoning. Imagine looking at human experience and using inductive reasoning from those specific cases to try to extrapolate out what must God be like. And the danger of that is you're going to come up with a picture of God that isn't worth believing in. Because you will see natural disasters. You, you will see the, the, the plagues of the earth. You'll see suffering of the innocent. You'll see earthquakes and fires and tornadoes. And, and not just the depravity of man, but the, the violence of nature. And what do you do about that? Well, do you just... You see, in some ways, that's the problem of the pagan pantheons. Well, we all see all these natural phenomena, so God must be like this. And, and Baal must be throwing down lightning bolts, and Zeus must not like Poseidon. And, and that just as how it is, the world is this way, that thus God must be this way. But that's inductive reasoning, and it's flawed. Because there's also good examples and that problematize that. And well, well then, okay, now we're gonna, am I going to rethink God that he's just fickle? Or maybe there's some good gods and some bad gods, and, or maybe on their good side, the bad side. I don't know how it works. Let's reverse the order and take deductive reasoning, where we take the general truth, the universal premise, and then apply it to specific situations so that we can make positive conclusions about those specific circumstances. When it comes to God, this is how it works. Instead of reverse engineering God based on the violence of nature or the difficulties and tragedies of natural, of natural disasters, and think God must be a, a disaster himself. No, we start with God's self-disclosure. And that's where scripture comes in. We, we start with God's self-introduction and that's where personal experience and personal revelation come in. It starts with gathering your cloud of witnesses who have had experience with the one true God who has revealed himself to be a God of omnipotence, yes, and omniscience, yes, but also a God of omnibenevolence, as they call it, namely a God of love. We've seen his power and his wisdom in the Old Testament. I hope you've seen his love. That's been one of my goals this entire year, is to help point out 
the mercy of Jehovah, his long suffering, his kindness, his compassion, and it's present almost everywhere. And that's self-disclosure. That's the reality of who God is. That is his character. And now let us deduce from that reality the nature of human existence. Let's deduce down to these conclusions. What am I supposed to make of the experiences I suffer if God is good, if God is love? I'm not reverse engineering him. I'm allowing him to reveal himself. So how's this for the premises? Major premise. 2 Nephi 26, 24. He doeth not anything, save it be for the benefit of the world, for he loveth the world. And if you need evidence of that, even that he layeth down his own life, that he may draw all men unto him. It's like the verse in John 3.16, that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. I mean, we can have evidence of his power and his might through creation, but we have evidence of his love through the incarnation, through the condescension, through the atonement, through the crucifixion, through the resurrection, through forgiving our sins and giving us hope and, and making us into people more like him. There's so much evidence of the love of God because when I feel his spirit, I feel his love for me and his love through me for others. It's beautiful. And so that verse from 2 Nephi 26 is our major premise. God only does things that will benefit us. Well, then what's the minor premise? Well, God sometimes allows bad things to happen to us. But insert the minor premise into the major premise and what's our conclusion? That must be true. Well, if God only does things that will benefit us, but sometimes allows bad things to happen to us, therefore God intends bad things to benefit us. Now, is that logical? Well, according to our deductive reasoning, it is. Again, that what we have to wrestle with is our major premise correct. But based on his self-disclosure, confirmed by the power of the Holy Ghost, then yes, God is good. God is love. And so when he allows something hard to happen, can I see his love shining through? If anything, the atonement should once again prove that. Since it means that Jesus descended below all things, took that experience upon himself, wrapped his injured flesh around us and became one with us in the process. That is love. And it allows him to let us suffer because he knows we won't be suffering alone. He'll be with us if we let him. So based on all of that, what do we know about God? Go back to Elihu's words, verse 31. Surely it is meet to be said unto God, I have borne chastisement. I will not offend any more, so I will learn from my mistakes. That which I see not, teach thou me. So another thing I'll learn, I'll learn wisdom from God's perspective. And then he repeats, if I have done iniquity, I will do no more. Now the case with all of us, that would apply perfectly. You want to come to know God, then... Repent of your sins and come unto him and you'll learn from your mistakes and you'll learn from 
his divine self-disclosure. And that's how you'll know what God is like. Honestly, the times I am clearest on God's love and kindness is when I'm repenting and feeling his forgiveness flow into me. It's amazing. No condemnation there. Just love. But the difference was in Job's case. And that's where Elihu here seems a little too close to what we saw in the other three. If Job is our ideal type of uprightness, and there's no specific sins I need to repent of here, well, then fine, take that one off the table. But the other one still applies. Coming to know God always applies, even when repentance doesn't. In in fact, in some ways, that's the best version of repentance. It's not just eliminating the sins of commission that gets us out of the telestial kingdom. It's overcoming the sins of omission that rise us out of the, or raise us out of the terrestrial kingdom. It's what makes us celestial. It's what makes us like him because we're finally getting to know him for what he's really like. So pray for that. Even if you don't have to say, I'll try not to offend anymore. Please say, teach me the things I can't see. Please open my eyes. And that's the prayer that Job should have been asking all along. In verse 35, Elihu goes on, Job hath spoken without knowledge. And that that is true. There's some ignorance here. That's always the case in stage one spirituality. His words were without wisdom. And we can't blame him for that since wisdom can only come from God. My desire is that Job may be tried unto the end because of his answers for wicked men. So take him to court. Now he does have some things to answer for. For he addeth rebellion unto his sin. He clappeth his hands among us and multiplieth his words against God. So even if you were innocent by the end of chapter 2, I'm not sure that you're still innocent here by the end of chapter 34. You've had some strong language for God. Now, I will say in this discussion of people needing wisdom, that that does apply to everybody. Everyone in this story is suffering from a deplorable lack of knowledge and of wisdom, mostly because none of them were around to read chapter 1 and chapter 2. I mean, Job was living it, but he didn't read it. He didn't see the the director's copy. (laughs) He didn't see the show notes. And so he's kind of just blindly suffering, not knowing that this was God versus Satan, and this is the the plan and this is the war in heaven and there's no hedge and you're just going to deal with it okay life is going to involve some suffering so it can involve some growth elihu and job's other miserable counselors don't know job job's true innocence and job even more tragically doesn't know god's true goal and that goal was not just to bless job which was what was happening before chapter one and two fell apart it's to perfect him which couldn't happen with stage one creation innocence. No, for that, you're going to have to pass through the fall. Sorry to break it to you. This one's going to be tough, but I am a heavenly father after all, instead of a heavenly grandfather, as C.S. Lewis described him, a senile benevolence that just wants to make sure that a good time was had by all. No, God is more serious about that, and so he does allow us to suffer. He does push the envelope sometimes and put us into difficult circumstances which require us to develop patience and faith and endurance and long-suffering and reliance upon him from whom all of these attributes will come. Oh, yes, there's some wisdom that we all need to come by. And it's not the kind of wisdom I can convey, Elihu would have to admit. 
But that's where the next few chapters become even more fascinating. Elihu does say a few more things that are worthwhile. He says in chapter 35, for example, verse 1, Elihu spake moreover, and said, Thinkest thou this to be right, that thou saidst, My righteousness is more than God's? Because Job, that's never the case. Even in the case of innocence, holiness is still higher. So even if you haven't done anything wrong, you haven't done enough right to put you on God's level. Okay? I mean, eliminating the negative still isn't quite as good as adding the positive. And so we've still got some work to do for you ever to become on a godly level. He then says in verse 5, Look unto the heavens and see. Behold the clouds which are higher than thou. If thou sinnest, what doest thou against him? Or if thy transgressions be multiplied, what doest thou unto him? That's on the negative side. On the positive, if thou be righteous, what givest thou him? Or what receiveth he of thine hand? In other words, your life doesn't seem to affect him one way or the other as far as glory is concerned. Uh, He's good with or without you. And you're not adding or taking or subtracting from him, which lets you know he's not doing any of this for himself. He's not the one that's going to change through all of this. You are. So all that he's doing is for your sake. If we go back to our our major premise from Nephi, it's for your benefit. So let's hold on to the distance between you and God. Even if you've lived a good life, it hasn't been a godly one. At least uh, you've fallen short in the wisdom department, in the knowledge, in the understanding, in the divine attributes. And so perhaps all of this suffering you're going through has a higher goal than just making sure the balance, the scales of justice are balanced. He adds in chapter 36 a lot more praise for God as the source of all those good things. In verse 2, he says, Suffer me a little, and I will show thee that I have yet to speak on God's behalf. You thought I was defending God's character thus far? Oh, you ain't seen nothing yet. I will fetch my knowledge from afar and will ascribe righteousness to my maker, since he's the one that deserves it. Back in 35, it was, your righteousness is nowhere near God's. And... 36, it's God's righteousness is far superior to yours. This actually reminds me of an amazing comment by Clayton Christensen, the great Harvard business professor that passed away a few years ago. He was speaking at a state conference in Boston, and he said, you know, people aren't leaving God. And that, despite all the evidence to the contrary, of people leaving organized religion. He said, no, they're not leaving God. They're leaving the false view of God that somehow their religions have given them. And when I heard that, my ears perked up and realized, that's true. If you've ever met an atheist and asked them, describe the God you don't believe in, by the end of the conversation, you can agree with them and go, oh, well, I'm an atheist too in that case. I don't believe in that kind of God. But let me introduce you to a God that's worth believing in. And a similar thing seems to be happening here with Elihu. You thought that God misjudged you. He doesn't. He's far wiser than that. So let's come to know what he's really like. Verse 5, Behold, God is mighty and despiseth not any. So God is mighty, there's his strength. He despiseth not any, there's, he's no respecter of persons. He's not taking anything out on you, Job. He is mighty in strength, there's his omnipotence. And wisdom, there's his omniscience. Those two always seem to go hand in hand. In verse 8, if they be bound in fetters and beholden in cords of affliction, which is exactly how you're feeling, Job, then he showeth them their work 
and their transgressions that they have exceeded. He tries to help them see what got them into this mess. He openeth also their ear to discipline. He's trying to train them up, raise them to be true disciples, and commandeth that they return from iniquity. There's the call to repentance again. If they obey and serve him, they shall spend their days in prosperity and their years in pleasures. Now, Job would have pushed back against that last part uh, because it was back to the righteousness equals blessedness kind of mentality. Uh, and that has proven to be insufficient explanation for his own circumstances. But the beginning, he would have been completely uh, in agreement with. God does bless us. He does call us to change. And often our circumstances, the self-inflicted as well as the non-self-inflicted, point us in his divine direction. In fact, oh, that's a new insight. Perhaps his calls to repent are not punitive. It's not punishment. They're educative. In other words, they're schooling, they're education. They're trying to get us to change. And that's exactly what the atonement makes possible. I mean, Christ is the hedge against the consequences of our sin. There was a hedge after all. And he died for our sins and suffered for our circumstances so that we could learn from them instead of being condemned by them. And that changes our perspective on schooling altogether. I have hope of passing, even though I might have a failing grade right now, because I'm here to learn. And my professor believes in makeup work. <laughs> okay, he believes in repentance. That's true of God. Verse 26, Behold, God is great, and we know him not, neither can the number of his years be searched out. There's another nod to the infinite and the intimate. The infinite is the fact that we cannot know him, at least not in his entirety. He's so far above and beyond anything that we could possibly imagine. Eye hath not seen, ear hath not heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man that which God hath prepared for them that love him. God is infinitely greater than we are. Then where's the intimate? It's that first phrase. Well, God is great. That's the beginning of the Muslim call to prayer. Allah Wakbar. That is God is great. And, and we know that. That's the intimate. I don't know everything I don't know a, a, a negligible fraction of all that God knows, but I know that he is great. Great in power, great in wisdom, great in glory, great in goodness. And therefore he can be fully trusted. And that's enough for me now. If I can trust and hold to that, then I'll figure out the rest of his wisdom when he chooses to give it to me in the next life. Chapter 37, then, Elihu concludes, and these are his final words. He says in verse 5, for example, God thundereth marvelously with his voice. Great things doeth he which we cannot comprehend. And that's important to hold on to, Job, your own lack of full comprehension. If we don't understand what God is doing, or and more personally, what God is doing in our lives, then it's because it's beyond comprehension, not because it's beneath comprehension. Huge difference there. And I think Job's problem is you're thinking it's beneath comprehension. Why doesn't God get it? Doesn't he understand that I'm innocent? And in the reality is the opposite. No, it's beyond comprehension. You don't understand what God is trying to accomplish with you. In verse 23, he adds, touching the Almighty, 
We cannot find him out. That's the infinite side of things. But here's the intimate, what we can find out. He is excellent in power, back to his omnipotence, and in judgment, back to his omniscience. And in plenty of justice, he will not afflict. He's not afflicting you, Job, for no reason. He's not malicious. He's not lashing out out of frustration or anger or just trying to, I don't know, vent. He had a bad day at work and he comes home and he kicks the dog. Don't do that. Uh, that is not what God is doing. He has a higher purpose. I always think of the karate kid with Mr. Miyagi making Danyo-san do all these chores and Danyo-san doesn't get it. And I, Miyagi is afflicting me with all these things. And when is he ever going to get around to actually teaching me karate? And little does Danyo-san know, I've been teaching you this whole time. So wax on and wax off and paint the floor and, and, and paint the fence and everything else, or sand the floor and paint the fence and everything else you're supposed to do. It's amazing scene when it finally clicks and he gets it. Well, we're about to see the click moment for Job when he finally gets it, but it's along those lines. You haven't been afflicting me. You've been training me. You've been teaching me. Wow, this is better than justice. This is grace. And though I'm passing through the fall, and it hurts, and I miss the, uh, the days of ease in Eden, I'm headed to higher and holier levels of living, and it's amazing. Now, it's Elihu that points him in that direction. Uh, his friends kind of beat him down, and then <laughs> humbled, uh, in a way. Elihu then moves Job in a better, to a better place, but it's, it's going to be God that's finally going to clarify things. And that's true of, of everything. If we're really going to get it, it's going to have to come from God. And so chapter 38 and 39, God finally breaks the silence. It's like, where's Elihu been this whole time? That's the real question. Where's God been this whole time? I mean, we saw him back in chapter 1 and 2, but he was hanging out with Satan. And, but he's, very been, he's been very interested in watching this story, this drama unfold. Verse 1, Then the Lord answered Job. But notice the next phrase. Out of the whirlwind. This is no still small voice this time around. He says, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee, and answer thou me. This is strong language. This is whirlwind tones. And he's saying to Job, Who's been calling me out? Who's been demanding to speak to me? Well, today you get your chance. So put your big boy pants on, Job. That's the gird up thy loins like a man. And answer thou me. You see, you've been asking questions of me for the last oh, 37, 36 chapters. I've got a few chapters worth of questions for you. And so instead of you making demands, allow me to and answer. So God begins. And in, this, in these next two chapters, 38 and 39, he asks a total of 59 questions. <laughs> it's brutal. It is rapid fire, machine gun, just do, 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 and answer this. And what about this? And what about this? And what about that? And you wanted your day in court? Oh, <laughs> well, take the witness stand because you've got some explaining to do. The first of those 59 questions, God actually asked him already. 
the way he began this, who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Question mark. Well, the answer to that was, uh, that'd be me. Uh, sorry, sir. This is putting Job in his place, and it's a decidedly lowly one for now. Uh, it's, this is going to be tough. But do you have any idea who you are? Darkening counsel with words without knowledge. You have put your foot in your mouth because you kept opening your mouth when there was no wisdom behind it. And I don't blame you. You don't know yet. You haven't grown up in God. You mastered stage one spirituality. Your trip through the fall was an absolute mess. You had some beautiful moments. And most people in stage two have those. And they tap into something higher and they think back to what they learned in stage one and they bring it back and, okay, that's what I'm holding on to. But it's so messy and so much ambiguity that a lot of just unwise statements come out of your mouth at the same time. So there's the first question. Do you know who you are and where you are and where you're coming from and where you're headed to? But then the rest of the questions aren't about Job. They're about God. Do you know who you are? Maybe, maybe not. But do you know who I am? And it's I am that I am that you need to come to understand. I actually want to leave these two chapters to you to read. Paying attention to the 58 question marks that lie ahead of you. But let me give you this hint. They all have to do with the creation. I tried to, got to, uh, to call attention to that in our earlier discussions anytime Job would bring up creation as evidence of God's power or wisdom. Uh, because what's amazing about, again, all things made to bear witness of him, what God says in these machine gun approach questions, I'll give you a few examples. Verse 4, where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare, if thou hast understanding. He's, again, he's trying to put Job in his place and it's working. Where were you when I laid it all out? In verse 6 and 7, Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Do you have any idea what holds the earth up? (laughs) Who laid the cornerstones thereof? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. I wanted to bring up that question because of the way it's couched with the end. Back to the idea of where were you when I laid all this out? Well, there's an answer to that. You were in pre-mortality, accepting the plan You were there fighting on my side against Satan, who's been fighting against you here ever after. You see the the beauty of those last phrases about the sons of God shouting for joy. This is one of the few passages in the Old Testament that is a clear nod toward premortality. We'll see another beautiful one in the book of Jeremiah. But this thought of when I laid the foundations of the earth, This pre-creation, the sons of God were there shouting for joy. Not just the sons of God, but also the morning stars singing together. If there's a parallel between the morning stars singing and the sons of God shouting, some have actually suggested, is this gender complementarity and the sons of God are shouting while the morning stars, oh, there's the daughters of God, are singing. And I love that, to picture the, God's daughters in songs of praise and God's sons shouting for joy. Joyful over what? The plan of salvation that allowed us to come to an earth 
with all of its messy mortality, with all of its testing and trials, with all of its adversity and affliction and, and its sin and its suffering, its natural disasters, its, the consequences of other people's poor choices, everything we're going through, this is the human condition. And when God presented it, we accepted it gratefully because there we were a little closer to the wisdom of God. <laughs> Prevail, right? You have a purpose and a divine one at that. We're going to grow up down there. Ah, oh, the fall is going to be dicey, but the atonement will make it all worth it. And sure enough, it's not just what we were fighting for, it's who we were fighting for. And it was fighting for the Father and the Son. Whom shall I send? <laughs> the Lamb of God, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He will roar sin and death into submission. And we believed that. We fought for it. You believed it, Job. You were there. I think more than just putting Job in his place with all these creation questions, because the rest are pretty brutal. The rest don't seem to have the same kind of theology behind it. It's more a matter of, Job, you're clueless, and you just need to accept that fact. Because the questions that he asks are things like, do you know where the, where, how I keep the sea within its bounds? Any idea how deep it is or how broad the earth is? Do you know where I keep the snow in the off-season? Or how about the hail? Where do I store that during the summer months, huh? Uh, do you know who teaches the, the horses to run and the birds to fly or even the ostrich to bury its, its eggs in the sand? I mean, it's a fascinating whirlwind tour from him whose voice was in the whirlwind on the complexities of creation. And what I love about it is by the end, Job is waving his white flag saying, uh, I don't know the answers to any of those questions. Leaving God just to smile knowingly. We're going to see more of that in just a moment, but can I just hit hard one last time the theology in those earliest, earliest questions? It's not just you don't understand the earth. It's at one point in, of your existence you did. At least there was no veil of forgetfulness upon your mind and to whatever degree you were able to wrap your mind and heart around my infinite and eternal plan of salvation you accepted it joyfully and you fought for it valiantly. What's changed since then, Job? We're, when we're in the midst of our sufferings and sorrows, oh, pray for a thin veil and pray to, pray to remember the time when you sang for joy, you morning stars, you daughters of God, when you shouted for joy, you sons of God. Elder Maxwell once joked that, yes, we, we shouted for joy when the plan was presented, but then we came to earth and forgot about it and sometimes wondered what all the shouting was about. Like, why was I so excited to come here? Because life's pretty hard. Well, a day at the gym is meant to be because you're building muscles during mortality. You're building faith sufficient to come home. And that's worth it. That's worth whatever it is we have to face and whatever trials we have to overcome. It's, Job, you, you knew it. Know it again. Well, he goes on. Then ch chapter 40 comes. And just like we saw Job's enemies have, get three rounds, well, God gets two. 
And in this second round, Job is humbled even more than he was in the first. Here's his first level of humility. Verse 1 and 2 of chapter 40. Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall he that contendeth with the Almighty instruct him? He that reproveth God, let him answer it. So what do you have to say for yourself, Job? And Job's response is complete humility. I mean, he's got nothing left to be proud of. He couldn't answer any of God's questions. In verse 3, Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. That's one of the most negative things he's said about himself this entire book, because so far he's felt like he's been doing pretty good at life. But once he sees the way, the truth, and the life himself, he realizes how far short he's fallen. And he says, I'm vile. What shall I answer thee? I will lay mine hand upon my mouth. Father, I am sorry. I had no idea what I was talking about. And so I'm done asking questions. I'm done trying to justify myself. I'm, I'm done making demands of you. And I'm sorry I ever started. I'm just going to cover my mouth and sit here in silence. Well, pretty good start. But, oh, one, one moment of humility doesn't quite offset the 30-plus chapters of you oh, wanting to sue me. So let's go with round two, shall we? Verse six, then answered the Lord unto Job out of the whirlwind again, and said, gird up thy loins now like a man. I will demand of thee and declare thou unto me. I'm not done with you yet. This is almost an exact repetition of what he said at the beginning of chapter 38. Again, this poetic redundancy to help us see the story moving forward. Uh, I've got a few more questions for you. This will be a light second round. Only 24 questions in the next two chapters. But as 40 and 41 roll forth uh, and the question marks begin to mount, again, God is putting Job back in his place. Verse 8 and 9. Wilt thou also disannul my judgment? There's one question. Wilt thou condemn me that thou mayest be righteous? There's another. Are you really going to call into question my judgment? He asks, hast thou an arm like God? Or canst thou thunder with a voice like him? Do you really think you can do what I do? Verse 12, look on everyone that is proud and bring him low. Tread down the wicked in their place. Let's see how good you are at it. If you're wiser than I am and can bring the lofty down to size. I mean, maybe you'll be pretty good at it now that I've done it to you. But uh, that's, that's where I come in. I'm trying to humble people so that I can end up exalting them. And yeah, it usually means we pass through the fall on the way. That's chapter 40. And then in 41, there's the rest of his questions. 20 to be precise. It's 20 questions. Uh, and they all focus on the great Leviathan, chaos itself, the sea monster, death and hell. You call it whatever you will. This is the nightmare of every mortal. And yet compared to God, oh, it's just the goldfish in the bowl. I can handle that. And again, Job comes to understand it, which is what we finally discover in chapter 42, our final chapter. I mean, we summarized it a couple hours ago when we started this, this lesson, right? Uh, Job had his stuff, and then he lost his stuff, and then he gets his stuff back. Isn't that what chapter 42 is about? Well, yeah, but it's better than that. This one is worth going almost verse by verse through. Look at verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I thought he was done talking. 
Well, he was done defending himself. He's now been brought to his knees and then brought even lower. And what will he say in conclusion? These are truly his final words in the whole book. His last confession. So when all is said and done, after this epic poem, after this work of incredible world literature, what has Job, and by association, what have we learned? What have we learned about the human condition? And what have we learned about the nature of God? Verse 2, I know that thou canst do everything. There's his omnipotence. And that no thought can be withholden from thee. You know everything. That's his omniscience. You can do anything you want. And whatever you choose to do, by definition, will be wise. It's the right thing, even if it makes no sense to me. Verse 3, what else has he learned? Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? That's a painful admission on Job's part because he's repeating God's original question to him. He's like, yeah, that would be me. I'm the one that hides counsel without knowledge. Therefore have I uttered that I understood not. Things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. That's such a beautiful phrase, such a humble admission. You knew things that I just couldn't wrap my head or heart around. They were too wonderful for me. There's a beautiful old talk that Von J. Featherstone gave way back in the day at BYU called Things Too Wonderful for Me, and it's beautiful. Just things about God, things about the church that would surprise you at how good it all is. Things too wonderful for me. I, I, I didn't know it, God is, or Job is admitting. I didn't understand it. I just didn't get it. And I'm sorry. It wasn't because God's thinking was flawed. It's that my understanding was incomplete. I, I couldn't think high enough of him. It reminds me of the great passage at the beginning of Doctrine and Covenants 58, where the saints are getting into Zion at, with no clue just how hard it's going to be. They're thinking this is creation, and well, it's going to be closer to fall before it ever gets to atonement. So he says in 58, verse 3 through 5, Ye cannot behold with your natural eyes for the present time the design of your God concerning those things which shall come hereafter, and the glory which shall follow after much tribulation. Oh, there's so much there. It's your natural eyes that have been, that have been blind, Job. It's only the present time that, that you've been aware of. You have no idea of the future. You don't know the design of your God concerning the things that are coming, the glory that you're not. You haven't stretched the soul wide enough to accept the glory I want to pour into you. Your shoulders aren't broad enough to bear up under the weight of glory that I want to place upon you. Your head hasn't swelled with divine wisdom sufficient to actually hold the crown. So hold off. He goes on, for after much tribulation come the blessings. It's just how it works. You've got to pass through fall on your way to the atonement. Wherefore the day cometh that ye shall be crowned with much glory. Let me give you the end from the beginning. The hour is not yet, but is nigh at hand. And please remember this, which I tell you before, that you may lay it to heart and receive that which is to follow. For the saints, they didn't quite lay it up to heart sufficiently. 
because the persecution in Missouri, the suffering there, just east of Eden, literally, <laughs> it came as a surprise to them when it shouldn't have, because God's like, wait a minute, I already told you this. In fact, he brings that up again in the midst of their suffering. It's like, we, I went through this back in section 58. Do you not remember? Okay, well, oh well. And in a way, he's saying that to Job. Premortality, sons of God shouting for joy, um, you were all in on this. And I guess I can't blame you for forgetting, thanks to the veil, but uh, please remember now that the Spirit is reminding you, this is all for your good. And I'm stretching the soul for good reason. Another thing Job learns, verse 4. Here I beseech thee, and I will speak. I will demand of thee, and declare thou unto me. Now, again, Job is quoting God there. When God calls out of the whirlwind and says, You've been demanding me? Well, now it's my turn. In some ways, I think what Job is doing is admitting, God, you had every right to say that to me. And I'm sorry I ever dared to make such demands of thee. I, I'm the one with the foot in the mouth. I'm the one that spoke with words without understanding. And so for me to say such a thing, I am sorry. But you know, there's another way to, I can ask those. Can I say the same words back to you, but softer, more humbly this time? Can I replace the word demand with plead? Can I plead with thee that thou wilt declare unto me more of what you've been declaring these last few chapters? I mean, imagine Job with his mind blown by the, cos the, the lesson from the cosmos and realizing all that God knows and does and has power to reveal. It's as if he's admitting, I've, I've never learned so much since admitting how little I knew. And will you keep declaring those things? It's like Moses when he has his own little Job-like experience. As he's bouncing back and forth between the infinite and the intimate and thinking he's everything and thinking he's nothing and facing the adversary and overcoming him. And when he's back with God, he says, I will not cease to call upon God. For I have other things to inquire of him. And I sense that Job is in that kind of a situation. Humbled, submissive, open, less wise in his own sight as he recognizes the wisdom of God. No wonder he says in verse 5, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. Understand the transition that he's made, according to that verse? Up to this point, oh, I guess in a way it's been hearsay. I heard of thee by the hearing of the ear. But now I'm right here, face to face. There's no denying it. There's no distance. I've gone from the cognitive, that's the, the, the mind-based. I knew some things about you. I'd heard about you to the experiential, and better yet, the relational. That's heart-based. And I know you now in ways I never could have known before. For you Spanish speakers, we've gone from saber de Dios to conocerle a Dios. Saber, they both mean to, to know. Saber and conocer both mean to know. But saber is the knowledge of facts and information. That, 
That's the book smarts in, in a way. And that's what Job had to this point. I had heard of him. Yeah, I, I was aware. I knew. But, oh, conocer, that's personal relationship. That's acquaintance, friendship, covenant. That's knowing someone intimately. And he's getting there. No wonder he says in verse 6, Wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now repent? I thought you said you didn't have anything to repent of. Well, I mean, as far as the, my friend's false accusations, that's true. I didn't have anything to repent as far as that's concerned. But I did need to repent of my limited vision. I needed to repent of my inability to see things as they really are. Of my, repent of thinking I knew better than God because I'd figured out stage one so beautifully. Oh, there was so much more to learn, and I'm, a so, I'm sorry for that. Even when he says, I abhor myself, in the King James, myself is in italics, which means it's not there in Hebrew. In Hebrew, it's simply, I abhor. Well, what? The King James translators thought, well, he must abhor himself. What else is there to abhor? Well, some other possibilities. Perhaps he abhors his earlier limited perspective. Perhaps he abhors the way he assumed things were supposed to be once he realizes that that was pretty myopic of him. Uh, you can hate your own sin without hating yourself as a sinner. And, and what, where God is trying to get Job is not simply some kind of, let me throw you back down into a pit. No, it's... I'm trying to, it, it, there's an interesting irony. I'm trying to bridge the distance between us by expanding it. I mean, how's that for a contrary? I'm trying to draw you closer to me by letting you know how far away from me you really are. But the way that, God, that the Lord does it is not by digging a pit and throwing Job into it. Rather, it's showing Job just how high the pedestal he's on happens to be. I've had interesting conversations with students over the years that worry sometimes. And when it's a good kid that hasn't committed many major sins, a little closer to Job than their peers, but then they see somebody who's lived a more rebellious life, but then they repent and change. And the love they have for the Lord because of their repentance and forgiveness is inspiring. And the good, quote-unquote, kids sometimes feel a little jealousy and start to think, should I go sin so that I'll love the Lord more for forgiving me? Because right now, I mean, he hasn't had to forgive me for much. And so maybe that's why I don't feel a whole lot of gratitude, because he hasn't done as much for me as what he did for other people. Sound logical? Well, in a way. But it also sounds dangerous if somebody's going to go sin in hopes of loving God more as a result. Okay? I think Paul would say, God forbid, right then. I would too. Instead, and this is what I try to share with my students, the gratitude they feel is because they recognize the distance between themselves and God, and they realize that God has made it possible to bridge that gap, to close that distance. And then I'll say to them, you don't have to dig a pit to recognize the distance. In fact, I'll take the pedestal over the pit, the pit any day because it's safer 
instead of deepening your pit, simply exalt his pedestal. And no hyperbole needed, no exaggeration required. Come to know God for who he really is, which is what happened with Job in 38 and 39 and 40 and 41. And it left him in jaw-dropped awe of the creator behind the cosmos, the God of the universe, the infinite who is willing to be intimate with him and come down to Job's lowly level and try to start coaxing him to come up to his. There's pedestal. And it is of an infinite height. If that doesn't put you in your place, <laughs> I don't know what will. And it puts it it puts you in your place in such a gentler and safer way. You're, you're not in the pit, but you're at the valley floor, and there's a mountain to ascend. So come unto him. I guess what I'm trying to say is the point at which God wants us to arrive is repentance and humility. And that's where Job is in those verses, right? I repent in dust and ashes. But it's not out of a sense of our absolute nothingness. Rather, it's out of the sense of our relative nothingness. And what I mean by that is, compared to God, we are nothing. I mean, we're amazing. We're created in His image, after the similitude of His only begotten Son. We are sons and daughters. We are morning stars, and we're here to sing and shout. And God loves us. But compared to him, we know where we stand. In fact, the way Elder Maxwell put that is best of all. His very first talk as an apostle, he said, in intelligence and performance. Oh, there's omniscience and omnipotence all over again. He far surpasses the individual and the composite capacities and achievements of all who have lived, live now, and will yet live. How's that for a high pedestal? And yet, Elder Maxwell added, he rejoices in our genuine goodness and achievement. But any assessment of where we stand in relation to him tells us that we do not stand at all. We kneel. And that's the position Job finally finds himself in. Kneeling before God, physically, mentally, spiritually, willingly, because he knows God for who God is. By the time this chapter comes to its close, God has chastised Job's three friends. They deserved it. Yes, they said some beautiful things. Go back and, and mine those diamonds and make sure you hold on to them. But they also missed the mark in so many other areas. So do we. He tells them to go to Job, the ones they were looking, the one he they were looking down upon, and Oh, go offer some, ask, bring some animals, and he will offer them as burnt offerings for your sake. He says in verse 8, My servant Job shall pray for you, for him will I accept, lest I deal with you after your folly, and that you have not spoken of me the thing which is right, like my servant Job. You see, Job was closer to the truth than you were. They'd come thinking they could help him, but they're going to go home realizing he's there to help them. It's okay, we've all got growing up to do. Then in verse 10, the Lord turned to the captivity of Job. And I love that word, captivity. 
Was that another one of his trials? Well, he was captive to his trials. And he was captive to his worldview. As partially true as it was, it was the partiality that captivated him and didn't realize that there was more than just sin equals suffering and righteousness brings immediate blessings. So the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. And yes, he still considered them friends, evidently. In fact, one of the best steps out of your own suffering is to minister to other people, to make them your friends, even if they don't always act like that. Lose yourself and you'll find yourself. That's what's happening with Job. And also, one more blessing, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before, which should put in perspective all the losses back in chapter 1. To get more than he had before? Suffering and loss evidently are not simply trials, they are rather tuition. And it's a, an investment with an incredible rate of return. To think about what you get out of an education, your return on investment is incredibly high, and the school of hard knocks sometimes has the highest ROI of all. To see what the suffering and loss that he endured is coming back to bless him now. In fact, read about it in verse 11. Then came there unto him all his brethren, and all his sisters, and all they that had been of his acquaintance before, and did eat bread with him in his house. Oh, this is social healing. There's personal interaction here. This is being reintegrated back into the community. It's happening with food. That always helps. It's in his own home. How's that for a ministering visit? And for this to occur, remember some of his challenges? Where not just the loss of his property, but also the loss of his relationships and people that he had once influenced for righteousness are now turning against him? Well, not anymore. They've come and they're breaking bread together. Keep reading. It says that they bemoaned him and comforted him. There's the, the order again. Mourn with those who mourn and then comfort those who stand in need of comfort. They bemoaned and comforted him over all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. That's different. Earlier on, his three friends came to bemoan the evil that he was experiencing and automatically assumed it was his evil that he was dealing with. No, this is simply the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. They no longer blamed Job. They saw God behind it. And in fact, if they saw God clear enough, they wouldn't call it evil. Uh, they might call it hardship. They might call it trial. It was definitely adversity, but not evil, because God is not the author of that. He's simply trying to exalt us. And finally, every man also gave him a piece of money. There's an impersonal gift. And everyone an earring of gold, which would be a more personal gift. I love that both of those elements are coming together. There was a time in church history where, oh, some, I think a widow woman was suffering and Everyone just expressed their sorrow, but then Joseph Smith reached into his wallet and said, well, I'm sorry, to the tune of $5. Uh, and he donated to this widow and dro dropped some hints that others should do the same. Well, more specifically, verse 12, the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning. That's what, we, that's what he was promised. We'll get more than before. But we can even see this down to the numbers. For he had, and here's the inventory, 
14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 she-asses. Now, in case too much time has passed since chapter 1, let's review the inventory from back then. In Job 1 verse 3, he had 7,000 sheep. Now, what's he got? 14,000. Back then it was 3,000 camels. Now it's 6,000. Back then it was 500 yoke of oxen. Now it's 1,000. And back then it was 500 she-asses, and now it's 1,000 of them. So, perfect double, just as was said. But then compare that to verse 13. He also had seven sons and three daughters. So, good thing that sister Job was still around, that somehow, miraculously, they were able to have children once again. But here's where it gets interesting. What was the comparison back in Job chapter 1? In verse 2, they had seven sons and three daughters. And right there, I, I, my, my math causes me to pause. Wait a minute. I thought everything was being doubled. Down to the last sheep. Then what happened with the kids? Shouldn't he have 20 children instead of 10? Shouldn't there be 14 sons and six daughters? And I remember thinking that once when I was checking the, the inventories and realizing, oh, wait, he did. As far as the eternal family is concerned. To me, this is one of the, the most subtle but beautiful hints that that is true doctrine. Because in, in a passage that made sure that every, I mean, we've got some good accounting here. And down to the last camel, down to the last donkey, well, more importantly, down to every son and daughter. You get to keep your first ten. As I double things with another, oh, quiver of arrows. Grateful, blessed is the man who has his quiver full of them. There's something beautiful about that. In fact, beauty, look at verse 14. Of these seven sons and three daughters, we specifically get to meet the three daughters. He called the name of the first Jemima, and the name of the second Kizia, and the name of the third Karen Hapuch. And in all the land were no women found so fair as the daughters of Job, and their father gave them inheritance among their brethren. Well, of course he would. I mean, if anyone knows what it feels like to get the short end of the stick or be treated what feels like is unfairly, <laughs> that's his life in the last 30, 40 chapters, he doesn't want his daughters to feel any of that. And so he treats them in, in the same way and gives them inheritance among his sons. And I love the fact that it said, no women anywhere quite as fair as them. I did have to point that one out to my father-in-law also when we were drawing parallels. When I pointed out that you have seven sons just like Job, you have three daughters just like Job, and then with a twinkle in my eye, referring to the daughter that uh, I got to marry. And yes, she's the fairest in all the land as well. I'm grateful for that that incredible blessing. Uh, to me, it's beautiful that the sons aren't listed or named, I should say, and the daughters are because the names of the daughters teach a lesson too. Jemima means dove, and Kizia means cassia, or some kind of sweet-scented spice or tree. And Keren Hapuch means the horn or child of beauty. And for a man who has suffered so much turmoil, God took it away and gave him peace. There's the dove, Jemima. 
for a man who had suffered so much bitterness and sorrow, he, God took it away and gave him sweetness. There's Kizia. And for a man who had suffered so much of the ugliness of life, he was given someone beautiful. In fact, all three were so fair. What a gift of love from a loving God to take ashes and bring about beauty. I promise he'll do the same for us. And whatever you're suffering, especially innocent suffering, but not even the innocent kind, through repentance, even that can be changed. It's the reason we're here. It's education, not condemnation. And through the atoning grace of Jesus Christ, through the wisdom and power and love of God, this is all the plan. This was what we, what we read in chapter 1 and 2. This metaphor for the war in heaven, it's what we shouted about, and it's still caused to sing and shout even today. The, chat, the, the book then ends in verse 16 and 17. After this lived Job in 140 years. That's a long existence, especially considering the fact he'd been begging for a speedy death. But Job saw his sons and his sons' sons, even four generations. So Job died being old and full of days. Better yet, full of joy, full of understanding, and full of faith in a God that was worthy of it. To think of all he'd been through in those years, to see sons and sons' sons and posterity when it felt at one point of his life that all of that had been cut off permanently. No more name in the land of the living. Oh no, his name lives on in one of the greatest books ever written. This extended meditation on the human condition. What's amazing to me about all of this is, well, I'll put it this way. It ends here with Job getting all of his blessings back and having a wonderful, and thus, or, and, and he lived happily ever after. And, and so the story ends. But what amazes me about it is in the last chapter when he got everything back, there was one thing he never received. And to me, it is the lingering irony of the book of Job. I will give you back your, your, camel and your camels and sheep. I will multiply your servants. I will bring family, children into your life. And I will multiply your joy. But in giving you all of those blessings, there is one thing I never give you. And that was an explanation. Wait, what? Read the story. Read chapter 42. God never explains himself. I mean, back in chapter 1 and chapter 2, we knew it all along. And you would think that once you got to chapter 42, God would say, oh, Job, let me, let me rewind the clock and let me show you the director's notes and this is what you were up against. And thank you so much for proving me right. I mean, I told the adversary that you would win, that you would not curse me. And you got close. I mean, you complained, but you never cursed me. And that's good. Uh, you held to your integrity, just like you said you would. You, that, that, I, I knew I could have faith in you if you would just have faith in me. And so... All's well that ends well, right? <laughs> no, there's no explanation. None of it. I, it would have to be on the, the other side of the veil. 
picture Job getting there and getting the full story. It's like, wait, that's what you put me through? I, uh, you're lucky I passed. <laughs> I made us both look good, right? Well, yes and no. The amazing thing to me is Job had gotten to a point where God didn't have to justify himself because that's what Job had been demanding all along. In some ways, it would defeat the purpose of the end of this book if God did explain everything from chapter 1 and chapter 2. Because Job, throughout it all, I demand you explain yourself. No, nope, I'm not going to. Because the purpose of life is not to have clear explanations as, it, as much as it is to have strong relationships with God. It's not even about to have, it's not about having perfect knowledge. It's about having powerful faith and trusting a God even when he chooses not to explain himself. That to me was the purpose behind all those questions of creation. I mean, think about it, because God doesn't answer those ones either. Job certainly can't. And though God can, he doesn't. As he's laying out all, this is to me so profound, that in those four chapters with all those, I don't know, 60-something uh, or more, 70, 80, I can't remember, I lose track. So did Job, I'm sure. All those questions about creation were meant to go unanswered by Job to prove the point that they don't go unanswered to God. It's as if he's saying to Job, do you get it? Do you understand all this? And Job is waving the white flag. I can't answer any of those questions. I know, but I can. So trust me, you don't know how the universe works. You don't know how I keep the planets in orbit. You don't even know what orbits are. Uh, you don't know how the stars stay fixed while the seasons change. But it all works. Because I know how it works. And if you can trust me on the level of the cosmos itself, can you not trust me with your little world? Do you understand how that works, Job? Do you understand why you're suffering? Do you understand why you go through what you do? Do you understand the purpose behind unanswered prayers or delayed blessings or just hard experience? If the answer is no, you should be used to it. You've been living in a world <laughs> that you don't understand, and now you're living a life that you don't quite get either. But just like I understand the universe, and you know that I do because it works, I understand your little life too. And if you can trust me in that, and rest assured that all will be well, you don't have to know what's in my mind. You just have to know that you're in my hands. And that's true of every little child that runs to a parent when they're scared or when they're suffering or when they're sorry. And the parent doesn't, have, especially when the children are little and compared to God, we are tiny, infants. It does, we don't have to explain to our toddler the theology of the atonement. We don't have to... There's so much that they just can't wrap their heads around. But we can wrap our arms around them. And that they do understand. That's what God was doing with Job. I don't want to give you perfect knowledge. I want you to develop perfect faith. 
perfect trust in a perfect God. And as little as you know, as long as you know that I know all the rest, then we're good. You'll be good. And he was. No demands when all was said and done. That to me is so beautiful. It's when we reach the, crea the atonement stage. And we've gone from creation where everything was clear through the fall stage where everything was messy and nothing made sense, at least not like it did before. And then on to atonement where, oh, there's light and darkness. There's contraries to prove. There's clarity and ambiguity. Because it's reality. It's things as they really are. It's faith which combines clarity and ambiguity. It's trust. It's relationship. When my students struggle with questions they can't answer, when they wonder about the nature of their eternal family, if their earthly family doesn't seem to make sense, if they wonder about how their patriarchal blessing will ever be fulfilled when it seems impossible, when they have questions about oh, God's governance of the universe, including their little peace, I usually channel my inner Job and accept some of the inherent ambiguity of it all and then challenge them to do the same. That doesn't mean I don't know anything, but it means that what I do know makes up for what I don't. And this is what I'll tell them. I've, I've said in the past, there are four things you need to know about God for you to navigate any times you don't know enough about Him. <laughs> as far as the specifics. Here's the four things you have to know. These are the premises out of which our deduction will flow. Number one, there is a God. He's there. Number two, God is omniscient. He will know the answer to your question, even though I don't. Number three, He is omnipotent. He will know, He will be able to implement the plan, and the plan will be perfect since He's omniscient. See how these build on one another? It'd be a bummer if there was a God that Again, struggled with the problem of evil himself. I don't know the answer. I can't do anything about it. Well, great. Some deity you turned out to be. But there is a God, and he's all-knowing. Now, it would be a bummer if he was all-knowing and not all-powerful, because he's like, oh, I know just the thing. Oh, rats, I can't do that. But he knows, and he can. And then fourth, and perhaps most important, God is love. So that whatever he is able to do, which will be the best thing imaginable, it will be the, right, the wisest thing to do, will be an, an example and evidence of his love for all concerned. It will turn out best for everyone. And I'm grateful for that. I don't consider that a cop-out uh, in, in the place of, of solid answers. Those are the solidest answers there are. And they're the relational ones. They're the faith-based ones. It's... It comes from self-disclosure and divine revelation and the confirming spirit of the Holy Ghost. But I do believe wholeheartedly in those four truths. In fact, it was enough for King Benjamin. Mosiah 4, listen to this in verse 9. Believe in God. Believe that He is. There's the first premise. That He created all things, both in heaven and in earth. So let's weigh the evidence of creation in all of this. Believe that he has all wisdom, that was number two, omniscience, and all power, that was number three, omnipotence, both in heaven and in earth, so this life isn't all we get, God sees a bigger picture than we do, so 
There's no expiration date there as far as death is concerned. It's heaven and earth. But keep going. Believe that man doth not comprehend all the things which the Lord can comprehend. And that's what Job had to come to admit. What confuses us doesn't confuse God. It's okay here. So then verse 11, since we got the first three, but we're still waiting for the fourth, here it is. If ye have known of his goodness and have tasted of his love, there's the fourth element, even so I would that ye should remember and always retain in remembrance the greatness of God and your own nothingness. Job was reduced to that, right? I am vile. Your things are too wonderful for me. Remember his goodness and long-suffering towards you, unworthy creatures. Humble yourselves even in the depths of humility, calling on the name of the Lord daily and standing steadfastly in the faith of that which is to come, which was spoken by the mouth of the angel. Now, that's a pretty good synopsis of the book of Job in some way, at least is what Job learned through it all. And if you can hold on to it, then verse 12 is yours. Behold, I say unto you, that if ye do this, ye shall always rejoice. Which seems to describe the last 140 years of Job's life. And be filled with the love of God, and always retain a remission of your sins. And ye shall grow in the knowledge of the glory of him that created you, or in the knowledge of that which is just and true. That, to me, is where we leave the story of Job. Growing in our knowledge of the glory of God. Even if we haven't yet grown in our knowledge of all that he knows, we'll be okay with that because we'll be with him. As I've said to many a student that is in my office in the middle of faith crisis, making demands of explanations of things God has done in church history or more often in their own personal history, I've sometimes tried to give a very quick overview of the book of Job. And the fact that God didn't feel required to explain himself, and best of all, the fact that Job got to the point where he stopped demanding one. Elder Dale J. Renlund made a comment once in a conference talk years ago, based on some work that he'd been doing church service in Africa, where he learned that this principle is fascinating. The further away someone is from the, the source of the assistance, the more entitled to it they feel. That's why we can make demands of the government in ways that we would never dream of making demands of our next-door neighbor. Well, why isn't the government coming to my rescue and passing out oh, debit cards after a natural disaster? Well, would you ask your own sibling? Or a neighbor across the street, will you come to my, to my aid? Ah, oh, no. There's something true about that principle. When we're close, we don't feel entitled to anything. When we're far, and it's easy to snap our fingers and make demands. And that's what Job learned. In fact, it's what Job teaches. And as I've said to my students, so I say to you and, and to me, since I need this lesson too. When we are making demands of God that he explain himself, that he justify his actions towards us or towards others. It's compelling evidence that we're not as close to him as we need to be. Because I have seen from my own life that when I am truly one with him, 
There's no fear. There's no doubt. There's no complaint. And there's certainly no entitlement. I'm just grateful to be along for the ride. I testify of God. I testify of his omniscience and his omnipotence and his omnibenevolence, that he is all loving and that he loves you no matter what you're going through. I pray that you hold on to that. In your darkest days, he is the light of the world. And I promise that if you will be close to him, you'll make no demands because you'll have everything you need in him.